All right. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Um, here tonight with a good group of friends. And if you haven't uh, joined in and listened to us before, this is a place where we essentially discuss secret knowledge uh, with ourselves and our, our friends, with our good familiars, in fact. We um, we originally planned on doing this session completely naked in a treehouse, but we figured YouTube would ban us, so we're not doing that. I know everyone here was probably super interested in seeing Jim's nipples, but that's just not going to happen. So I, I apologize, or as I call them, jipples. But that's not going to happen. So, um, so yeah, if you are new to watching this show, welcome. Uh, we basically what we do here is we crack open good horror films. We talk about why we think they're scary. Uh, and what that says about us individually, collectively, we basically place a heavy emphasis, uh, a heavy evaluative emphasis on fear with a name of exploration. Uh, we're basically like PG-13 Cenobites, right? We're like explorers of the extremes of human experience, except like in our PJs behind a computer screen, like introverted PG-13 Cenobites. That, I don't know where I'm going with this. So uh, our podcast basically is all about fear. Um, and that's important because the film that we're gonna be discussing today, um, to me, is one of the scariest films I've seen in a very long time, and I'm very eager to discuss it. Um, like for me, tonight's movie is up there with uh, It Follows, which if you know me is extremely high praised. Those are, uh, It Follows is one of my favorite horror films, I think, of all time. Um, so I'm here tonight with uh, Antonio Garrett, Jim, and Shayra. And um, basically what we do is every other week, one of us selects a film that truly scares us. And then what we all do is sit down, talk about it, explore why that is, what we liked or disliked about the movie. And so tonight's film is Hereditary, directed by Ari Aster and released earlier this year. So before we hop into the movie, I, I want to give a super quick shout out um, to our friends over at the Scary Thoughts podcast. They originally invited me to be on their podcast for their hereditary session a couple months ago, and I had to bow out at the very last minute due to a family emergency, sort of ironic, given that the film was hereditary. Uh, so uh, if you like what we do here at the Deadly Analysis podcast, check them out. They're on iTunes and Stitcher. They're called the Scary Thoughts podcast. Uh, the two hosts, Chad and Mark, are really smart guys. They cover horror films somewhat similar to the way we do. They treat the genre as something valuable, something to be respected, something informative. And that's pretty rare in a world where like The Nun and Annabelle are like real films that are actually made, right? So check them out. Um, uh, let me start tonight's session by just briefly unpacking what Hereditary is about and then really unpacking what Hereditary is about. Because I think like any good horror film, there's there's layers that need to be peeled back. But on the surface, uh, Hereditary is about a mother named Annie, Annie Graham, played by Toni Collette, and her family. So her husband, Steve, her son, Peter, and her daughter, Charlie. And they're all mourning the loss of the family matriarch, Ellen, who's uh, Annie's mother, uh, so Peter and Charlie's grandmother. The family turns to various different means to handle their grief, uh, including Annie and her daughter both flirting with the supernatural. They begin to have disturbing and otherworldly experiences linked to the sinister secrets and emotional trauma that have been passed through uh, the generations of their family. So, spoiler alert, uh, we discover throughout the course of the film that the grandmother, Ellen, before passing away, was actually the leader of a satanic cult that worshipped a very specific demon, uh, a king of hell, actually, named Payment. And so Ellen, over the course of much of her lifetime, the grandmother tried to unsuccessfully instantiate the demon payment into a physical host. Specifically, she volunteers her family, opting if at all possible for a male host within the Graham family. Uh, and this will ultimately end up being Annie's son, uh, Peter. So, so, so that's hereditary. That's the story, right? So this is a story about the unraveling of a family due to circumstances that for the most part are not 
you know, entirely within their control and because of information they're not privy to for most of the film, right? So tragedy after tragedy occurs to this family through the vehicle of a very detailed and meticulous manipulation of a satanic cult that's doing Ellen's work at, even after she's passed away, right? So that's what the film shows us. And that leads me to why I, I think this film was so scary to me, and I'll kind of open with that. Um, you know, yes, this film has cinematic jump scares, and I actually really enjoyed them in this one. There's gruesome images in this film, so it has those things. It has those traditional horror elements. But for me, those, those things sort of pale in significance to the idea, I guess, that you that you never really know somebody. You know what I mean? Like, even worse, somebody that you're supposed to be close to and to love, right? Like your mother, your grandmother, the, the, the one you owe your existence to, right? So the familial connection is so drastically turned on its head in this movie that it wouldn't surprise me if Charlie could feel it after she was decapitated, like bam. You know, there's like this, this fear in this film of being beholden to your ancestors, right? Like to those before you that you're never really fully your own thing. Um, that are, there's these familial elements completely outside of your control that determine particular themes, uh, things in your life that you don't have a lot of control over. Um, and this goes, I think in this film, especially well beyond the sort of cliched biblical sins of the father stuff, right? In fact, I, you know, a unique part of this film is that it's entirely reversed. It's not the sins of the father. It's not past tense and masculine. It's the desires of the mother, or in this case, the grandmother. So it's like future tense and feminine. Right. Re recall that Ellen leaves Annie a note that basically or a letter that basically tells her, you know, all of the tragedies that are happening here for the best. Right. And there will be rewards uh, for what's happening later on. It's it's like an evil version of a motherly pat on the head, you know, like everything's going to be OK. Trust me, I'm your mother, that sort of thing. Um, and this movie scares me because it's it's a, it's like a, it's like postmortem child abuse kind of right. Like. Grandmother Ellen's gone, but her mendacious efforts to man manipulate aren't, right? And and per personally, as someone who's who suffered a fair amount of child abuse, that sort of fucked me up. I mean, like, I, I, like personally, I'm so utterly terrified of bringing a child into the world and damaging that child that I just refuse to have kids. It's like a big fear I have is having kids. And I think that sensitivity that I have was hijacked so perfectly in this movie. Like, it made me feel that fear really heavily, you know? And I, I, I enjoyed thinking about that. It made me feel very tense and off, um, which I liked. I'm, I'm a weird person, what can I say? So I think what Hereditary does is it takes that intuition, that like family, is a unique thing of value, like an end in and of itself. And it shows us a deeply terrifying example of what it looks like to use a family as a means to an end, right? So like the, um, we'll, we'll call them the pymonic benefits, <laughs> if you like the riches, the secret knowledge, the good familiars, like those things were worth more than Peter and Charles and Annie, right? Like they were, in fact, they were the things used to get the riches uh, knowledge and good familiars, the, the family members, right? And so I think that film plays with an intuition that we all have about the value of family. Um, so, so those were some of the general things, like the sort of large operating fears I was thinking about when I was watching Hereditary. But like, man, even on a, um, even if we drill down into specific scenes, like this came out in sequences that were entirely out of left field for me. So like the, the two scenes in this movie that completely destroyed me, where the scene where Annie is grieving, you know, wailing, uh, wrenching back and forth on the floor after she lost Charlie, 
And then the scene at the dinner table between Annie and Peter after Charlie dies, that sort of iconic scene where they're they're eating dinner and they're like unable to express their guilt. And at a certain point, Annie says something to Peter, like, you don't talk to me like that. I am your mother, right? That's, a, that's one of the scenes people think about the most, I think, when they think of hereditary. I mean, even in that scene, right, there's, like, you can sort of see that sort of matriarchal power coming out. It's, it's, it's a kind of power to say, this is who I am, so you listen. This is who I am to you, so you better listen, right? And although that's Annie talking to Peter, one could argue that Ellen has put in place those same premises with Annie and her grandchildren even after her death, albeit in a much more insidious way. But it's still there, right? It's still this sort of, this is who I am to you. I'm, I'm that house ab upon which you build your house. And this movie you know, even has distinct imagery that reflects this, right? There's a scene that actually shows a dollhouse built on top of a dollhouse built on top of another dollhouse. Um, so when I watch Hereditary, those are the themes that got to me. Those are the things that did it for me. It was like a cocktail of devaluative determinism and maybe even a fear of inherited complexes drawn out through just really intense sequences of dread, like familial dread, which is right up my fucking alley. It's, it's the shit that scares me more than anything. Um, and I know there's a bunch of other things in the movie that we could talk about. We'll probably go through some of them. Mental health stuff, free will, fate, Satanism. There's tons of symbology littered throughout this movie, lots of lore. But for me, I just thought I'd start the movie off by talking about my fucking mommy issues because that's what scared me the most in this film. Uh, so that's how I saw this film. I, that's why I think... It scared me so much. It it had that like, what I what I like to call like a deep fear, right? It had that deep fear for for me. It wasn't that, it wasn't all just the cheap spill your popcorn, jump out of your seat seventy four times, nun esque sort of bullshit, right? Like, that's not a film that's hard to make. I I don't think. You know, those are movies that are a dime a dozen nowadays, and they don't reflect anything core or fundamental about the human experience. But I feel like Hereditary had those things. You know. Uh, anyway. That is enough of my rambling. That is, I thought I'd start by just telling you why I thought Hereditary was so scary from my perspective. So let's stick with that. What did you guys think of Hereditary from, you know, not from a cinematic perspective necessarily right away, but let's just stay on the topic of fear. What do you think was doing the work in Hereditary that made the movie so scary to schmucks like me, besides some of the things I talked about? Like, did you find Hereditary scary? I'll start it that way. Anyone can hop in. Okay, I guess I'll hop in. Um, I sort of found it scary. I certainly found it intense in its uh, in its filmmaking. Like, I, I the question you're asking seems to be, did it personally affect me? And uh, the way that it did gets into a different theme than the one you're talking about. So I'll just briefly talk about the theme that affected me more than anything, and that's um, the mental health angle. Um, I think that there's this film works best for me as a metaphor for mental illness. And to tease that out a little bit more, I think that when one has a mental health disorder or behavioral disorder, or a mental health issue of, of some, some form, there's a there's an innate question about what is me and what is the illness? What behaviors are truly mine and what behaviors are as a result of this disease that I have? Um, I And that was, 
that that's the thing that got to me the most. That's the thing that uh, when I'm evaluating how scary this film is and how deeply personally effective it is, not in sort of a, a film school way, but in a, a personal way, that's that's the theme that I sort of hook on to. Anyone else? I guess I'll go into some stuff. So um, I think that the name of the movie is extraordinarily ironic um, in that we're still learning a lot about psychological problems and mental health issues. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this movie is you're trying to figure out what stuff is passed on maybe by nature and which stuff is being passed on by nurture. Um, either way, it's still a hereditary thing, but you know, it's, is it stuff that's passed down because of what's in their DNA or stuff that's being passed down because of an abusive starter person, which would be the matriarch of the family. And um, I find that aspect of it far more interesting in that, like when they were talking about when she was um, in the group um, talking about the recent death, she said that her mom obviously had issues. Her dad had issues. Like he ended up not um, eating and just dying from not eating and that her 16 year old brother um, hung himself. Although I, I'm pretty sure the reason why he hung himself is he was trying to avoid being um, payment. So uh, I think a lot of the family figured out what the mom was up to and doesn't really talk about it, but they're like, she's trying to summon a demon like, <laughs> and put him in us. And that's scary. So, um, uh, but you, you hear that there's all these problems, but did they all stem from her? Like, did, did her husband even have mental health issues dealing with a wife like that? Um, how much of this stuff is due to family ties and how much is due to the family just spreading the disease through being jerks to each other? So. Yeah, like for me, that, that went back to like, you're never really fully your own, right? Like even in inherited... You know, like I, my family has a history of schizophrenia on the female side. And like, that's always been a fear. I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast is, is that like, like what's the stuff that's all you and what's the stuff that's not all you. I, and I think this film has some of that in it. It's, it's the fear of, of having baggage, having familial baggage, having hereditary baggage. Like, um, and if we, even if we see the film from a largely mental, you know, like a mental illness perspective, a little, little bit of a Babadookian perspective, let's say. Um, I, I think you can still, you can still sort of tack that on to the fear of like, what if, what, what if I'm not entirely mine and what if I'm carrying something that's, that's not, that's from my mom or my grandmother. That's not entirely me making all of my decisions in the most, I don't know, Noah-esque way, let's say. And I think it's even worse when you have a particular label to affix that that other thing that's making your decisions for you. Like, yeah. is this me or is this the bipolar disorder? Not that I have bipolar disorder, but is this the specific named mental illness that exists that other people have told me that I have that blah, 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 blah. Like that, it, it, it's that dynamic um, creates a, a sort of self war that I think this film demonstrates in a really poignant and and scary way. Like if you're talking about the things that really sort of freak me out about this film, that's it. It's like, what's me and what is my named actual disorder that another person has that uh, has has um, imbued with validity? Uh, that's that's pretty scary. Go yeah. Ahead. 
I want to dive into the the mental health stuff in more detail later on. I'm I'm, I'm I see why you bring it up now because that's your answer to to Noah's question. But uh, I don't want to ignore it because I think that is a really interesting part of the film. And it's worth diving into. But uh, rather than commenting on it now, I will come back to I want to come back to it later and directly ad address Noah's sort of opening question uh, because for me, I think what what touched on me about this film is somewhat similar to everything you guys are talking about, but maybe you have perhaps sl slightly different. Um, and, and that's for me, you know, the sense that, that I took away that these people were doomed from the start, that there was nothing that they could have done at any point that would have changed their fate. You know, uh, uh, plans were in motion long before the curtain come, goes up on this story. Um, and these people were just complete passive victims. So it's a very sort of anti-existentialist message in that respect. Um, and, you know, you can sort of tie that into the notion about, if, you know, the, the hereditary notion, you know, this, this sort of, again, this, this mental illness, the idea that it's, uh, it's something genetic. Um, but whatever the sort of specifics of it is, the idea that, uh, you know, something long before you came into the picture, long before you came onto the stage, is going to not just dictate your fate, but condemn you to an absolutely horrifying one. And you are powerless to change that. Uh, that's a thought that I find uh, quite disturbing in many ways. Yeah, honestly, um, the it, I, I actually probably am going to differ with a lot of you in that I really did wasn't a big fan of the movie. The movie didn't do much for me. Um, there were a number of things I liked about it, but overall, the sum of the movie just was not compelling. Um, however, um, to address the effect of of sort of heredity and the theme that it plays through in the movie. Um, I completely agree that I got the same impression that Garrett did in that um, this is fundamentally a tragedy of Greek proportion where everyone is completely doomed into a fixed position in the story from the start. And I think this is even cued in the movie. The movie opens with a shot of a dollhouse zooming into a room where the uh, where there's somebody in bed and then we see the person get out of bed and then the movie begins. It has kind of like a Truman Show-esque effect. Um, and the movie is indeed shot from this kind of dollhouse-like perspective in a number of scenes. If you actually take a look at it, it's got this very boxy perspective where you see very defined corners in the rooms. You can see three, three sides of the room. It's like you're looking in the side of one of the dollhouses that she's making, right? Um, and so again, it, it, the, the story, completely from beginning to end feels like it is a construction and the theme of the story is precisely that it is a construction this is all an elaborate psychodrama um playing out and there's an inevitable end and all the components have already been machined to fall into place rube goldberg style <laughs> that was my impression of the movie well, I mean, they actually, the way that they painted is that they, the cult was actually creating multiple ways to get to the conclusion. Um, you'll see like when this woman approached her about, hey, I you know, want to do a, a seance thing. Before that, they tried putting a, a thing in the mail about like, are you a skeptic? And not only that, if you look at the scene where the, the brother is driving down the street to try to get his sister help. There is an animal in the middle of the road, but also if you look at the pole that her head hits, it has the symbol of payment on it. So they had been 
plotting and planning all of these things, they're pulling the strings on them, literally. And as Jim pointed out, even in the classroom scene, you see like a string pulling his arm up and he starts slamming his head into the desk like he's a puppet. And that's what freaked him out. He's like, holy shit, I don't have control over my own body. And it scared him. So yeah, it's it's definitely these people do not have control over their well, it's also it's also the content of the of the classroom. So a rule, right? When I feel like like I'm talking like I'm in Scream. The rule of horror films. So there's a rule in horror films that if there's a classroom scene, in any horror film, here's a here's a great piece of advice: don't pay attention to what the scene wants you to look at. Listen to what the teacher's talking about and what they're teaching. Always, uh, it's, it follows Halloween and it's this film, right? So in this film, they're talking about Iphigenia and her dad Agamemnon sacrificing her so that you know he can get wins. And so that's that's what this movie is. That, that's essentially what this movie is. It's the sacrificing of a family. But I think to the point of no free will, they did, they orchestrated everything in this movie. That satanic cult made it to where they had any way they turned, they had no freedom, which is interesting. And in fact, it's it's a, you know, they, they talk about this in the uh, in the classroom scene also. Like, what is it? The, he asks, uh, the, the professor asks, you know, is it more tragic or something if the characters use their their own downfall, you know, due to a fatal flaw? Or is it worse if they were fated all along? You know, like which one of those is worse, right? It's clearly the key to a certain part of understanding this movie. Um, and it's part of the tragedy. I mean, it is the tragedy in a lot of ways. Um, so that's subtle, definitely there. Subtle nuance on this point though. Um, I feel it's a mistake to say that they don't have free will. Uh, they do have free will. The problem is that the free will is circumscribed by the, the fate. So it, it, this is, to use a technical philosopher's jargon, this is not a determinist tale, it's a fatalist tale. Uh, the, the end result is inevitable, but they do have different paths to get to that. So in some ways that's even more horrifying because you still have free will, but you can't escape the fate. You can choose the path to your fate, but you cannot escape the fate. Um, which, I mean, again, depending on your uh, emotional sensitivities might be worse than being completely determined at every step of the way. Right. It's like the tale of Oedipus where, you know, he may, he deliberately tries to escape the prophecy three, four, five different kinds of ways. And he ends up getting turned back into the fate that he's doomed to live out no matter what he does. But his choices are actually free. And even when he tries to turn away, he ends up turning back. That's the, that's what makes it tragedy. Now, do we want to talk more about the classroom scenes? Because I, mean, I think the, the 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 allusion to the Oristia is really interesting, but it's kind of maybe a little heady. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the ancient Greek tragedy comparisons. I'm not sure if that's the direction you guys want to go in or not. So I just uh, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm yeah, we're there. Hear what you have to yeah. say because I don't know this stuff. So please share. Right. Okay. So, I mean, a quick rundown of the basic setup, right? Is yeah, Agamemnon is going to war. He's going to war against Troy, which is across the sea. But in order to get to get across the sea, he needs wind, and there's no wind, so he has to sacrifice his daughter to get the wind. And that sets in motion a series of events which stretches out over like a half dozen different plays and a bunch of different myths told by different authors um, about sort of your 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 past always catching up with you. Agamemnon is eventually killed by his wife and her lover when he comes back. Um, and then uh, his, uh, his children have to avenge his death. And it's just, again, it's this hereditary intergenerational series of tragedies, which is you know sort of beautiful and amazing. It's like the original cinematic universe, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and, and, and a bunch of different authors then you sort of take, uh, take pages and tell different versions of this story uh, uh, over, over the generations. And it's 
really interesting and fascinating. But I mean, again, I don't want to get too much in, in the nitpicky here. One problem I have with using that in the scene is that Agamemnon, while he does makes a terrible decision in sacrificing his uh, his daughter, he is basically the hero of the story. I mean, he is a, a good guy of sorts. I mean, he's a warmonger and a warlord, but he's kind of the guy. You know, he's a flawed character in many ways. Um, but he is unambiguously a good guy. And so by bringing up that comparison, it sort of suggests that the, uh, the, the cult uh, is, are the good guys, that somehow that by, uh, by sacrificing their uh, daughter uh, or their granddaughter and then uh, her, later the son-in-law, that they're doing something that's in some way noble or heroic uh, as Agamemnon was. And that, uh, to me, didn't sit well. But the same twist happens in Witch, where the bad guys are actually kind of the savior of that character. And in a way, Peter was in a bad way. And now he's, you know, he's going to be okay, I guess. <laughs> he's not one. He's dead. But... <laughs> and then bringing the ninth, the bringing hell onto Earth. I, I don't know. I, Ah, uh, Payman's not necessarily hell on earth. He's a demon from hell, and he would—he's the demon of music and art, and he will bring riches to people and brings truth to people. So maybe he'll be good for the cult. <laughs> but I mean, he also like one of the things that interested me about the film, and I didn't catch this in the first or second viewing, but I caught it today, was the look on Peter's face when he becomes Payman. He looks like, "What the fuck am I doing here? Why are all you people doing this?" This is what the hell, uh, and that kind of that that moment of even the demon kind of doesn't want to be there. Uh, I thought it was an interesting little. It's an interesting twist on what could be a yes. Now come to me, demons of hell. Like and everyone wanted that. that. From my from my understanding, everybody wanted that ending. The biggest criticism from all of my friends is that when he when Peter becomes payment, he doesn't like his eyes don't turn black and he doesn't say I am payment or so. I, I would have been happy for him to just start doing Bob Ross paintings as you know payment the demon you know the artsy demon. But uh, yeah, like I uh, yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Gary. You know, can, I, can we can we talk about that final shot because yeah. From a directorial point of view, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. You know, to just hold the shot on his face, and then you have you know, the cult members, you hear them in the background. You know, I mean, that to me was incredibly effective. I mean, it's not the way that you know, intuitively, you know, if I were framing that 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 sequence, I, that's not how I would have framed it. That's not what I would have done. Um, and I think their decision was much better than the decision I would have gone with, which is obviously why I'm not a director. Um, but uh, I, I, yeah, I. I mean, his the expression on his face is an inter is, is interesting, and obviously there's a deliberate choice to do it that way. But but I'm just thinking more about the cinematography of holding that shot. It was quite powerful. Yeah, Ari Aster does that a lot in this movie, where he focuses uh, whenever there's sequences of horror or pain or tragedy, he focuses on the face of the characters, I, 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 like all throughout the film. Uh, he kind of flips the traditional script on its head in terms of filming particular sequences. Like if you think of most horror films, uh, The Nun is a great example. I don't know if you guys saw The Nun, but there's a hundred thousand sequences of like whenever something scary is about to happen, a camera will move towards uh, a, a like a person towards the person in a moment of tension. Um, and or I'm sorry, away from the person. And Ari Aster moves them towards. So in other words, the camera, the person's coming towards the camera, and a lot in Hereditary. Whereas if you see the nun, it's the person going away, and there's a lot of focus on the face when other stuff in the background is going on, when person's being lit on fire, for example. And I think some of that in this movie may have been to accentuate like Tony Collette's, I don't know, her mental illness, her facial fucking movements in this film were, were gnarly. So I think there there was a lot of time to focus on her facial features. But yeah, anyway, or to to film them rather. 
But um, I think the best example of what you're talking about is Charlie's decapitation, right? Yeah. Because instead of like, whereas the uh, director of the nun might have focused on a decapitated body or a decapitated head, we get a close up shot of of Peter's face, and we stay on that for a really long time, and uh, we don't actually get to see this quote unquote money shot of the dead the dead person until the next day. I think that's, uh, it's right along the lines of what you're talking about and probably the best, that's one of the most effective moments of the film for me. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. And it's 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 all over the film. It's in tons of different sequences. So yeah, so uh, since we've mentioned now, again, I think two things absolutely that the film deserves incredible praise for. And first is Toni Collette's performance, which I really think it's Oscar worthy. She's, she's amazing in this film. Uh, I, I can't imagine how emotionally difficult it must've been for her as an actor to have to put herself in that headspace over and over and over again for hours at a time, days at a time. Um, and then the other thing again is, is the cinematography, I think is just fantastic. And it just is just, just absolutely wonderful. Um, and not only perfect for the film, but technically quite impressive just in its own right. So what was the deal with, what, with what, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I just want to throw in my vote for Tony Collette for best actress this year. It's already, the, the race is already wrapped up. Uh, go ahead, Noah. Yeah, but they'll, but they'll announce uh, uh, as part of Hereditary, the comedy. That's what they'll do. They'll call hereditary. Well, I, I actually think that he, the director actually said that he does not label this one a horror movie as well. I think a lot of horror movie makers are like, you know what? We can't label it horror because it doesn't, it doesn't sell. I, and so I think a lot of people are going away from calling it horror. Like, I think it's more considered a drama, this film. And to be fair, a lot of the elements are a drama. There are little elements that are obvious horror elements, you know, bugs crawling out of a face and stuff like that. But, it's got I mean, demons from hell. It's a horror movie. I mean, I think <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I think this is just the way of the future because they're trying to bring a more, um, they're trying to get more people to watch horror type element movies. So, but you guys see like the difference. So let's maybe explain like, okay, I, you probably don't even need to have seen the nuns to even talk about the nun in any meaningful way, but like you see the difference between a, a horror film like the nun and a horror film like this. I, I, there, there's such, to me such an obvious difference in quality, and I, I, I hate to say that without sounding insanely pretentious. No, I don't. I like to sound pretentious. Like, it, what do you guys like? So I feel like Blumhouse they'll pump out 37 Annabelles per like one deep horror film. I mean, did you guys see like a difference in this sort of? I feel like this is such an obvious question, but like, do you, did you do you guys see a difference in the quality of a Hereditary versus a Conjuring or an Annabelle or anything like that? I mean, it doesn't surprise me in the least that this film was released by A24, which does yeah. incredibly high quality work in general. I mean, you know, they do art house films, I suppose, if you want to call them that. Um, but, you know, they also diversify a lot. You know, they, 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 they I don't know if this is their first horror movie or probably not, I guess. But, you know, it, it, it's certainly, you know, if they were going to make a horror or produce a horror movie, this is the kind of horror movie they would produce. Um, and again, that contrasts with Blumhouse, which definitely goes for more of the popcorn fare. Um, and you know, and again, you can you can just say which you prefer more. No doubt, you know, a lot of people would just have more fun at a show movie like The Nun or something like that than they would at this. This is this is not what I would call a fun movie. Um, uh, in many ways, actually, I, I you know I I didn't enjoy it in, the, in any sort of superficial way. You know, I was expecting a more traditional kind of narrative, and when I didn't get that, that frustration, uh, you know, it it, it, it 
it was something of a disappointment, I suppose. Um, but unlike a film like The Nun, this is a film that sticks stuck with me. I, again, mm -hmm. I haven't seen The Nun, but I suspect if I saw it, I'd forget it as soon as I did. Uh, so maybe I did see it and I already forgot about it. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's kind of inconsequential. But this movie is a movie that I had, you know, Jim and I saw it together. We had to talk about it for a long time afterwards. It took a lot of unpacking. And it's a film that I think I could talk about, you know, for, for, you know, for two hours on a podcast like this. Well, to be fair, I got I got to interject. Uh, Blumhouse is not responsible for the Conjuring verse. Uh, they're responsible for bad horror movies like uh, I don't know, uh, Insidious, Truth or Dare, The First Purge, The Purge franchise. But they're also Blumhouse is also associated with Black Klansman, Get Out, uh, The Belco Experiment, which is yeah. Not really that great, but uh, so I, I do want to sort of say the gift, the good, the the Joel Edgerton gift. Um, so there's unfriended. Someone in the chat said unfriended. Yeah. Unfriended. Yeah, yeah. So Blumhouse has a a more mixed bag than I think. Just throwing them into the the shitty horror films. New Line Cinema is responsible for the Conjuring verse. Um, but yeah, I mean certainly this the A twenty four and. Uh, and, and I think Blumhouse as well are trying to um, resurrect the horror movie franchise from the shitty horror movies, like also Blumhouse film, The Green Inferno. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm both uh, making my point and uh, shitting on my Blumhouse point. is trying to resurrect the shit, get to make horror movies Blumhouse. not shitty, like the shitty ones they've made, yeah. <laughs> Blumhouse is responsible for Creep and Creep 2. So yeah, that's, that, there that's, you go. That's their saving grace, that's their saving yeah, grace. Yeah, there's, so I, I think it's, it's sort of hard to, I think that there are artists and there are studios and producers behind those studios that are doing their best to resurrect horror films from their, the shitty horror films that, that we've gotten in the 80s, 90s, and uh, uh, to some degree in the 2000s. And I think that's fantastic. And, and I think that's the, one of the reasons, one of the things we're trying to do on this podcast is highlight the good ones, call out the bad ones, sometimes but mostly just talk about how horror can be an effective interesting engaging intellectually satisfying um and cinematically pleasing genre so yeah on the on the topic of cinematically pleasing I, gary you said something really interesting you know when you when you watch this movie it, it's not like you enjoyed it and i that's such a like like this movie is i didn't enjoy it either like i <laughs> you know what i mean like on that level i didn't it messed me up it rubbed me the wrong way and then i think the reflection of that is why i then later on enjoy it i guess you know what i mean like it it left me like i had to think about it in order to say this is a movie i would see again that i that i that i can say i liked and when i say i like hereditary i mean it made me so unnerved and uncomfortable right which is an odd thing to say right this goes back into i think like a year and a half ago when we were going to do our book like why do we like horror we, we were, were going to review a couple books on that um I think it was like Men, Women, and Chainsaws, or it was a, a different one, actually. Uh, anyway, but like why we are attracted to the grotesque, you know, why we like the things that we don't like, that sort of thing. And Hereditary is a good example of that for me. It totally wigged me out, uh, just felt really uncomfortable, but I liked that uncomfortability. Um, I felt it really strongly in this film. I did have a question for you guys. What was, with, what was the deal with all of the beheading? There was a lot of beheading in this film. The bird, you know, like there was tons oh, of... 
I, I think that the, that relates precisely to what you were just talking about. The, that That's the director saying, this film is coming to rip your fucking head off. Well, I think there's two... <laughs> I think there's two parts of that thing. Um, first is, uh, I'll start with what in in universe might make sense. And that is, if we take this as a metaphor for mental illness, I recall um, like mental illness is in the head and you have to tear the head off in order to, I don't know, be cured of the thing. Um, and in order to release the demon from what is possessing him uh, or what is what he is possessing. I think you also have to tear the head off at the same time. I don't know if I'm right on that. I think that's just some shit that I might've made up in order to uh, justify seeing. Honestly, I think you're on the right trail there. But, yeah. I, I think you're on the right trail there because it makes me think of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, did we lose Shayra? Did I, yeah. Am I the only one who lost Shayra? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I don't know why. Okay. Oh, you're good. Go for it. Say it again. So, yeah, I was just yeah. saying it reminded me of Alice in Wonderland, you know, where the Cheshire Cat and all these other characters are removing their heads and they're all mad down there. So I think. Uh oh, we're having some technical difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know what she was trying to say, but I think that um, it does fit into the attempt at a world building that this that's that this film offers. And there's no there are there's no shortage of um, other films that also include beheadings as a way to uh, uh, as a way to symbolize the passing on of one demon to another. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, perhaps being an example there. Yeah, I, 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 I the the way I kind of thought about it was like the removal of a head of like, uh, like uh, matriarchy, like the like your mom and then your grandmother, like the removal of the that prior instantiation of your like that house upon a house, you know, like burning down one house, building another on top, like that sort of thing. Um, that's how I I sort of interpreted. Um, but I, and then but then the 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 uh, the out of left field. A version of that is the bird. I don't know why the bird had to be decapitated. Maybe it's the bird's mom or the bird's kids weren't too happy with the bird. I don't know. Maybe she was just practicing. I don't know. I, <laughs> I This gets into one of my criticisms with the film and that is that the world building and the rules of the demon in the universe. And maybe this is where uh, Antonio might want to jump in. But I think the my initial reaction to this film was that it needed more or better world building. That the the rules of this universe weren't totally set up. They weren't remind. There's the old setup payoff or setup reminder payoff, and that is nowhere present in this film. Um, and it, it almost seemed as though the film was changing gears on me without me without letting me know that the film had changed gears. And to be honest, a lot of the ways that I've thought about fixing that would also sort of make the film worse. You know, I don't want hereditary origins as a sequel. Uh, yet, I do think that finding a way to, to, to sneak in some more world building, better world building, more cohesive rules for the world would have, uh, would have certainly helped me enjoy and get the A to B to C of this plot a little bit better. Um, 
I, Antonio, you were playing the part of the echinoclast earlier. <laughs> uh, I wonder if uh, if you had the same criticism as perhaps I did. But but before you before you say anything, Antonio, we did have a comment that may have explained the three the heads. Uh, we have a, a user uh, Pegacorn thirteen. Hope I'm saying that right. Uh, King Payment actually carries three heads with him, so there's actually a, a a narrative component to that. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, as far as as far as the movie, um, my biggest critique of the movie would simply be that uh, it's it's Ari Aster's first movie, and so my biggest critique of the movie would simply be it, it feels like somebody's first movie. Uh, the rough edges in the movie are the sorts of things that you would expect somebody who is not extremely experienced in feature length film as a medium to to sort of make. Um, so, for example, one of the things that Jim brought up is world building. Um, I would I would more to the point classify this as as it's kind of bloated storytelling. Um, the movie should if, if the, the movie sets up a big reveal, but but it sort of teases you with the idea that it might be a different kind of movie several different times while not being a movie that's all about teasing out the big reveal, right? Um, so, like, for example, when you first start watching the movie, I, I watched the movie with absolutely no background knowledge, hadn't read any reviews of it or anything. When I first started watching the movie, I was like, oh, maybe this is a movie about a creepy little girl who, like, does some kind of crazy thing. And then 15 minutes into the movie, she's dead, which, by the way, I think she was, that was a waste. That actress was wonderfully cast, and I would have loved to see more of her in the movie than just that 15 minutes before she's killed off. Um, so she's killed off 15 minutes into the movie, and so then you're like, oh, well, it's going to be a movie about being haunted by the vengeful ghost of the little girl. And then it turns out it's not actually a movie about being haunted by the vengeful ghost of the little girl, but it's a movie about, like, this plot involving the grandmother and the girl was actually a male demon in some way and you know what i mean like it, it, it keeps unspooling in these ways where the world that it's built at the time like previously doesn't indicate any of that you know when you when you watched 15 minutes into the movie you have no idea that this is going to go into some like crazy occult direction when you've watched an hour into the movie you have no idea that it, there's going to be like a, the decap. Well, I guess they sort of do cue the decapitated corpse of the grandmother by mentioning that the grave was desecrated, but they don't mention that there's going to be like a bunch of nude dudes up in an attic with like, you know what I mean? Um, so it, the the world building is rough. Um, the the cinematography is really really excellent. I think the editing is a little on the sluggish side. I think that you could have probably trimmed five to 10 seconds off a lot, a lot of those really long shots without really losing a whole lot of effect and made for a more compact movie where scenes transitioned from one to the other in a more effective way. Um, so yeah, so the, my, my criticism of the movie is basically just that it feels, it feels uh, like a first try, like a first draft of something. Right. And it's got some germs of greatness, but it's not quite there. I find that that very interesting because I, I think I, I disagree with about 80, 85% of what you said there. So first off, the editing. Um, I, you might be right on a couple of shots. Maybe there's a few, five seconds here, five seconds there that, that they, they could have spared. But several of the editing th uh, edits I thought were fantastic. There's multiple times where you, you, you get a slam cut from the house in the middle of the night to the house in the middle of the day. And you know that's something that I think is... I suspect at least it's very hard to pull off in a way that works. And I, I thought the transition there was just, was quite fantastic. 
Um, so overall, I think the editing was quite solid. Um, we yes, agree on the cinematography. The drag. That's all. That the, my criticism is just a lot of the drag shots drag really excessively, and not that the editing itself is bad. A lot of, like I said, a lot of the cinematography is good, particularly when you consider it in the perspective of that kind of dollhouse-based perspective. Mm -hmm. It does really effective job at highlighting that. Speaking of which, we should have a conversation about the dollhouses, the miniatures later on. And yes. That. Um, but you know, you, yeah, you might be right about the length. Maybe it could have been shorter. I, I think I'd have to see a cut that looks like that to really know for sure. Um, but it didn't to me feel like a, a first director's job at all. I mean, what you're talking about, about sort of the shifts and in inconsistency, I, I really like that because it kept me on my toes. I too was expecting it to be about a creepy little girl. And when she dies, you know, 20 minutes into the film, it's like, wow, okay, where is this going now? And now, you know, my, my template for understanding films, like, like what I thought I was about to see is now out the window. Where's my new template? And I like movies that keep me off balance like that. And I think this did, a, did an excellent job of, of keeping me off balance. Uh, I did have criticisms. I agreed with Jim's basic criticism about the rules. I think, and I think the scene to me, which embodied that the most is, you know, when she's the second time she tries to burn the book you know the first time she gets set on fire and so she's afraid that if she burns it she's going to be killing herself she tries to get her husband to do it he refuses to do it so she throws it in there and then he is set on fire it's like wait a minute that's a complete abandonment of the point that you established previously um you know if if, if he had thrown it in and then he had burned up that might have at least made some sense it's you know it burns whoever puts it in the fire um, now the, the excuse that I suppose you could make for this is, well, he's the trickster God, right? So he's kind of like Loki. So he's turning it around on what she expects. She thinks she's sacrificing herself when in fact she's killing her husband. But if, you know, again, if you're going to take that as part of your world building, then there's basically no rules and you can get away with anything. And that's, to, that, that to me is kind of weak. So if I think there's, there's, there's weaknesses, it's not in the directing. I think it's in the script. It's a, there, there's weaknesses, I think in the, in the screenplay, uh, that I think, and I agree with you, Jim, they're not easy weaknesses to fix. You know, I can imagine going back and changing them, but I'm not sure it actually would improve the movie overall, even if it would make it more cohesive in certain ways. So even this is sort of like, you know, a, a, a you know, Monday morning quarterback uh, kind of criticism. The yeah. Another example, real quick, Antonio, another example of that, that world building is uh, the problems that I had. Why does the mother have superpowers and no one else does? She can levitate and run around and do all these crazy shit, all this crazy shit, but no one else who's inhabited by the demon has these, these same abilities. What is, you know, once again, you sort of go to this, um, it's a trickster God. And so that's why, but that's, that's weak. And if you miss those insert pages, uh, when she's doing research from the, like the mother's old books, if you miss those, you have no idea what's going on in this movie, but, uh, go ahead. I, I don't mean, I, I just wanted to build off that point real quick before. Yeah, no sweat. Um, so yeah, the, the, the standard that I apply when I'm watching, uh, you know, these sorts of movies as when I'm evaluating the script is can I can I easily think of how you could have made a much more interesting movie out of this movie, right? And so um, as I was watching, there were two or three opportunities where I looked at, at the at what had developed so far and thought to myself, man, you could really make a better movie out of this than it appears to be becoming like, for example, um, the movie plays fairly heavily on the theme of mental illness. And, you know, obviously this is something that's particularly important in our day and age. It's important to highlight. Um, one of the things that, that I thought the movie didn't do really well is that despite highlighting the mental illness, 
they don't actually really show anybody who's categorically mentally ill, and they provide completely plausible explanations for how none of the alleged mental illnesses in the movie might actually have been genuine mental illnesses. Like the the husband of the grandmother, you know, was depressed, right? Uh, he might have been depressed because she's a conniving, evil, demon-aligned bitch queen, right? Like, it's easy. It'd be completely reasonable to be depressed under this, those sorts of circumstances. The brother killed himself. Well, he probably could, he might have killed himself because he didn't want to be a host. And that, again, by the way, is a violation of the rules. Because when the kid throws himself out the window and is apparently dead, he comes back to life and is then the host. So why didn't the kid who hanged himself come back to life and become the host, Right implicitly um so uh so it takes all these mental it takes all these uh, alleged mental illnesses and kind of just papers them over like makes them like not actually biochemically related mental illnesses um and i i feel like that was a missed opportunity because the interactions in this movie the interpersonal interactions are some of the most compelling elements much more so than the supernatural elements of the movie and so um, the one of the things that I would have liked to see would be have been more interplay between the husband and wife on, you know, is she actually mentally ill? It makes the movie makes pretty obvious from the beginning. She's not really that, you know, the glass actually moves. You see the glass actually move. And there's not a question that there's an unreliable narrator because she goes back home and does this with the husband and kid and freaky shit happens there, too. Right. So we're immediately put out of a frame where we might be questioning our narration. Um, and it, I think it would have been much more interesting to make it uh, ambiguous. You know, did she actually come up behind that kid sleepwalking and try to choke him? You know, it becomes fairly obvious that that's not really exactly what happened. Um, yeah, exactly. Like Babadook. And, and so um, and so I, I feel like the, the movie missed some opportunities there. Um, and similarly, like when delving into the occult elements, the, uh, they got several occult elements right. Like Paimon is actually a demon that you can find in demonologies. He does have some of the attributes that are ascribed to him in the movie. And so it would have been interesting to see the movie take a more demonological aspect where they actually delve more into, like Jim was saying, the lore of it. Um, but again, kind of a missed opportunity there. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I felt like it, maybe, I think Garrett actually put it well, the direction actually wasn't that that bad, but the script definitely had some some flaws that prevented me from fully being able to engage with the emotional intensity of the movie. And I also felt that the emotional intensity of the movie was a little bit manipulative. Like they, they jacked a lot of the emotional dials up to 11 in a way that's definitely calculated to leave the viewer with a stronger response than if the characterization had been slightly different. You know, if it, if it had been an old dude who got his head whacked off instead of a 13 year old girl, we'd feel very differently about the movie. And so the movie is deliberately playing on our expectations in that way. And I guess that's the point of the movie, right? That it's a construct from top to bottom and that it is a deliberately manipulative experience from beginning to end, that the movie is manipulating us from beginning to end, subverting some of our expectations and, uh, and driving us deterministically along toward an ending. And it may be in that light, the inconsistencies make a little more sense. Maybe they're just middle fingers, right? Or possibly ways to make you feel like you're going insane as well while you're watching the film. Yeah, and it, to some degree has that effect. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Garrett. 
No, I was gonna say, uh, I did wonder second time through watching it again, thinking in particular about mental illness, because again, I didn't, I didn't really know about that theme the first time I watched it, but second time thinking about it, I wondered what would this film play like if you completely removed the actual demons and you really just made it a literal story, a completely a realist story about a woman thinking that her son is trying to be possessed by demons because she's going crazy. Um, and I think that could be a really interesting movie. I don't know if it would be a better movie necessarily, um, but it could be just as scary, uh, it would, you know, but it would also have required a lot of different choices. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, again, I think of it kind of like, you know, the, the young girl. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I agree. The actor was quite wonderful. Um, and she was very, very creepy and, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, pitch perfect, but the, you know, they made a decision which sort of conflicted with, you know, my instincts and, you know, I like the fact that it went in a direction that I didn't anticipate. And then sort of, it was, it's the same thing. Again, if, if you brought, if, if this movie had been brought to me as a concept, I probably would have steered away from the demonology and made it more literally about mental illness. Um, and they didn't go that way. And I think, you know, again, I, I suspect that they're, they're better off for it. Yeah, yeah but I, are confusing. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Noah. I was just going to say, I actually think the lightest theme in this film was mental illness. I mean, I, I felt like that was 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 so light that I, I just skipped really writing any meticulous notes about it. I thought there were so many other things. But I, I actually like that. I liked not committing too heavily on the side of pursuing, you know, how, is, is it a mental illness that's going down the line? Or is it a ghost story like Antonio was sort of saying? It's interesting what, maybe if I would have not known what this film was about going into it, like I did with It Follows, like I, that may be why I love It Follows so much because I had no idea what I was going into. Um, you know, if, if I would have not known in this, I probably would have had the same, like, well, well is this going to be a ghost story? Is this going to be a Babadookian mental illness exploration? Like, what, what is this going to be? I like that it hung kind of everything on the metaphysical reality of the demon payment and the manipulation of the satanic cult. I, I felt like that may have been the strongest thing in the entire film. I mean, it's certainly the takeaway because they literally, you know, have, I mean, think of the ending. It's a literal ending. Something's really happening. There really is a demon, right? Uh, I could have gone without the floating Tony Collette, though. That that was probably like floating up into the treehouse. That almost ruined it for me. I was like, no, no, that's a little. I it would have been gone so much better if she was climbing without a head. Oh, right. So right. Awesome. Right. Yeah. I, I would have. Yeah, that would have been fucking mind boggling if she was just walking and then climbing up the treehouse. Just have been terrifying. no head. It would have yeah. been terrifying, right? That would, that would work perfect. You know, but then you go, well, I was just, I, I'm hearing myself say it. It was almost like she was on a string, right? Which is, right? Like that's right. what we're talking about, right? So, but I, that's dedication a little far beyond what I would have liked. I would just, it looked weird. I don't know. Anyway, but I, I liked the non-commitment to any one thing. I mean, I didn't, like I've seen this movie four times. I haven't, I, I mean, I didn't mental illness seemed to be the least important thing to me here, really. I mean, it it, it seemed, um, I mean, not to say that it's not a, not an important issue or that it's, it's, it's just not hammered in as hard as I think maybe, Jim, you're saying for me. But again, as we've discussed in every horror film I do, it's probably a result of me bringing my own shit to this movie. But like I said, I saw this more as like the stuff before you in a broad sense, not just like the mental illness before you, let's say if your mom has it or your grandmother has it and it's passed down but the power piece particularly, right? Like the control piece, the the we're gone, but we're still a part of you piece, right? In a broad way, not necessarily just tied to mental illness, but um, so I 
I liked the non-committal to all of the stuff we've kind of been dancing around. Like I, a lot of us have been saying, I'd like it if they went harder on this. I'd like it if they went harder on this. I, I liked not going hard on any of that stuff. And the whodunit element of hereditary was kind of cool to me. That's one of the things uh, I'll say I liked about it is the whodunit element. Like what's going on? That sort of thing. Like what what is happening? Right. And once I got it and the, uh, Antonio, a second viewing of this film, they make it way more um, enter entertaining for you. It may make things a little more clear. But on my second viewing, it was the best viewing. I was like, it all kind of came together. But I, I like that. I, I rarely say that in a horror film. I'm usually like, commit, damn it, one way or the other. And this one, I liked the the lack of commitment one way or the other. So anyway, I throw that in there. I think it's important that I'm calling it a metaphor for mental illness. I'm not. I, I yeah, think there's yeah. a difference between a metaphorical depiction of mental illness sure. and a deliberate depiction of mental illness. I think a deliberate depiction of mental illness would have far less impact, at least for me. And now I, I find it interesting that you found that the least uh, compelling element of the film, where for me that is literally the that's the key that opened this film up. And I love the idea of making a movie, a, a demon possession movie uh, about mental illness. I think that's such a, a great concept because for many people, it's as though I got possessed by this demon called depression or bipolar disorder or whatever other behavioral or uh, psychological disorder that you want to you want to. Jim, play. were you with us when we did the Babadook podcast, or was that before you joined up? Yeah, so that we, we uh, yeah we yeah we definitely this was very similar to what we're talking about. We we sort of explored that. I felt like that was the best film that kind of goes into what you're describing. Go ahead, Garrett. I'm sorry. As I say, it goes. I mean to the, the granddaddy of all of these films, The Exorcist. I mean, the, the, while The Exorcist is not about mental illness, the phenomena it is presenting you know, the, of, of demonic possession, that was mental illness. You know, for, for, for centuries, people mistook and misconstrued mental illness for demonic possession. Uh, and some people still do. Uh, so, th I mean, the idea of, of a demonic possession movie about mental illness to me isn't, I think, you know, terribly innovative. That's that's just the actual history of the concept of demonic possession is tied into uh, to the idea of, of mental illness. Uh, I just think that Ari Aster did a very good job of uh, of putting a new spin on it. So let's let's talk about dollhouses and miniatures. What 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 were those about to you guys? What what was that about? I don't know, and that's one of the reasons why I want to talk. About <laughs> I mean, my my it's a great my, answer. In my most sort of cynical moment, it's just a gimmick. You know, it's like it, 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 it's it's creative. It's well done. It's a great effect, but it has no deeper significance. Um, but I Pons feel in a game. Pawns in a game. Pawns yeah. in a game. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could look at it that way. But if, if that was the theme, they should have gone with actual games instead of miniatures. I mean, those things didn't move. You know, there was oh, that's, girl, that's overt. That's overt. As a girl, though, I have to say it's perfect metaphor because I played with dolls and dollhouses. And yeah, you're manipulating people's lives and creating drama for them. You're putting the dolls around and you're like making them fight each other or you're making them eat this meal or whatever. And so I thought it was a perfect metaphor for the fact that the family couldn't control this stuff. But on top of that, um, in a lot of songs, you'll hear about dollhouses. Um, usually a dollhouse is a metaphor for like how you're trying to portray your family is totally functional and normal and great and perfect and happy. And look at our pretty little family portrait. We're so great. And actually on the inside, everything is fucking shit. And 
So um, it, it has a lot to do with how you're trying to fake it in front of people. And it is also just definitely something that where girls usually are playing with them. I'm not trying to pin that on it because I used to play with dolls with boys too. But um, when you play with those dolls and manipulate them, it is generally a girl activity in our society. And the matriarch was kind of the one controlling everything. So it's a perfect metaphor for the person who's controlling shit. But I, I think I also that, think it, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. I think the, the, the problem that I have with that interpretation though, is that she's not playing and she's not manipulating. She specifically says she's trying to give a neutral perspective on things. I mean, it's a neutral perspective of the accident is her line when she does the one. That, about that's that only story. one particular uh, miniature set though. Like there's right. tons of things she's building. But, but I think that that's true of you know, of her work in general. Again, she she is, I mean, again, I think she says that because that's her process. That's her method. She's trying to give a neutral presentation of her life and of the various elements but of her life. But couldn't the art be a reflection of how her mom controls things? I mean, it could, yeah. I mean, I, I guess so. So she she is to her art as her, as her mother is to her life. Um, but I think that, the, the, again, the difference there is that her mother is deliberately trying to bring something about, whereas she, at least on her own testimony, is simply trying to present the the, the facts of, of, of the world. It, it's grief. It, go, it, go ahead, Jim. For me, it worked as a character, uh, a, a little character detail, a character moment, um, an insight into Annie's character. And it worked in this way. I, first of all, I saw the, the dollhouse... Uh, partly in the way you were articulating Shara, but also as her artistic expression of her family and her difficulty communicating with her family. This is a family that is so separated and so uncommunicative that Peter does not just goes to bed after he decapitates his sister and lets his mother find the dead body. Um, this is a family that is unable to talk to each other about anything meaningful. We see moments when uh, Gabriel Byrne's character, Stephen, I believe, starts trying to talk about deep things with uh, with his uh, with his family members, and they stonewall him at every step. Uh, this is a family where. Uh, she says, well, have you asked your sister if you want to go to this party and blah, 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 blah. And it, there's that whole sort of telephone game that they end up playing before the sister actually goes to the party. Those things indicated to me the degree to which this family is so in unconnected and isolated and that Tony, that Annie's only ability to express her uh her view, her 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 only ability to express where she fits in this family and how this family fits with her is by externalizing it into an artistic creation. Um, that's what the dollhouse meant to me, and that's why and and that's why when she smashes that uh, the dollhouse in the end of the second act, I believe. Um, that signaled to me that there was a real turning point for Annie, that she was about to go off the deep end. Um, so that's that's how I read it. I, I don't know if anybody else uh, had similar points of view. I think I think um, it's important to emphasize that the how the movie begins, that the movie begins with a zoom into a dollhouse room. And without any cuts, we zoom into the dollhouse room and then the figure in bed just emerges from bed and starts going and then we're out of the dollhouse in the real world uh, seamlessly. Um, 
And I think that's very important to the symbolism of the dollhouse. Obviously, it's placed immediately at the beginning of the movie, and it's the only element in the movie that explicitly breaks a fourth wall. And so I think that, again, makes it very important to the movie because it's clearly the director trying to tell us something. And I think, again, we, we return to the theme of sort of fatalism here that, that, you know, the dollhouse represents not necessarily Annie's experience even so much as the director's, right? The director is constructing these sets. He's constructing this narrative. He's manipulating the characters and making the, leading them toward a, a devised end that neatly wraps up all of their character arcs and storylines in a very, very final way in this movie in particular. Um, so, um, and, and it's also notable how relatively few other characters we see in this movie. This is a movie that very much focuses in on its main characters and the other characters that we see are very peripheral and relatively scattered for the most part. Um, so um, so this is, this is it's, it's it's ultimately it's the director playing dolls basically you know the director is building these these sets and again the movie is shot from the perspective of sort of dollhouses that these are that we're looking into a dollhouse that the director has erected and the characters the little dolls are moving around inside as as he's prescribed and and this is i think also highlighted by the fact of annie's work as well because annie's work is not um is not particularly aesthetic in the sense of pursuing, you know, she doesn't fantasize a scene and then construct it. Her work is extremely biographical. And that's honestly one of the things that seemed strange to me about the movie, implausible even, was, you know, looking at some of these scenes that Annie was putting up, it's like, you know, someone's sick in a hospital bed in a, like a nursing home. And then people are calling to say, hey, have, how's the display coming along? And, I, and it just kind of boggled my mind that people would be paying her money for these like, dollhouses depicting tragic scenes from the artist's past, you know? I don't know. The, people like dark art. I mean, especially when it comes from people's personal lives, it's it's it, it's plausible. But I mean, I think the other thing is they're trying to show how the sickness from our childhood can go into our adulthood. That's why there's not just dollhouses. There's a tree house also involved in, in the horror of this. And that's where everything actually uh, comes to an end is at the, at the tree house. So a lot of the housing is like, child's like children's toys as as a as a form of showing the mental illness that they're dealing with so it's essentially saying all the stuff that happens in our childhood just continues on with us forever and i think that's why noah probably got as fucked up as he did over it and also why my husband when we were watching it was like oh this messed noah up <laughs> i know this messed noah up so oh no it did it it, it definitely did i i saw so like Let's think of the dollhouse and how, um, you know, Annie's working on it. I actually, so my understanding of what's happening in the film is that she's, you know, she's paid to build this one particular set that she's putting aside and she's focusing all her time on the personal projects. Not necessarily that people are going to be paying her for it, but it's just, it's like her own way of coping, her own, it's, it's a personal thing, right? You ever been in a situation where life has been so difficult that you just take a step back and think from like a third person perspective about the situation you're in and that becomes a kind of mechanism for coping that you go, this is kind of wild that I'm in this situation that I'm in. And you take a step back and you breathe and you assess everything and you get a neutral view of everything as a means to cope, as a means of, of assessment. I think that's, 
her dollhouses. I think that's why they exist. I think they certainly fall into the themes of fatalism and there's definitely stuff there that tie it into it. But I think in terms of you know why in the story Annie is doing the things that she's doing, building the the things that she's building, it's it's primary almost entirely as a vehicle for grief. Um, you know, there you could also you could also maybe say that look, hey, Pyman was into arts and crafts. It's not just Annie who's building. You see Charlie putting together little trinkets and bird heads and shit and trying to build a person. That's that's certainly a theme in this movie is building, right? Building, building oneself, building a figure. Um, um, cutting off the heads of, of, of uh, in, in this case, people before us, our mother and our grandmother. There's definitely stuff stuff in this. I mean, it, 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 another way to look at it is just raw manipulation. Like Pyman at the top is manipulating Ellen, who is manipulating Annie, you know, who is, um, you know, at, at a certain point in the movie manipulating Peter. They're all sort of pawns in a game, characters in a fatalistic um, game that they that they don't understand. So I, the dollhouse works on multiple levels, but I think in terms of Annie, it's it's a way of taking a step back and and pouring into her art, you know, grief and 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 using it as a coping mechanism. Yeah, and, um, yeah. Antonio, if you if you haven't read Stephen King's short story, The Woman in the Room, I highly recommend it. It's uh, I, I don't know if it's inspired by a true story on King's part. But, you know, it is, you know, the experience of a man dealing with his mother dying and it's incredibly harrowing. And it, to me, you know, makes entirely plausible that someone would uh, consider a, a miniature art scene of a woman attending her own mother's death. Um, yeah, I, I, I have no problem at all behind the idea that, that, that people would see that as art. Well, I mean, even Tool did a song called Judith. Uh, where he was coping with his mother's death. And that was one of the darkest songs I've ever heard. And it's very powerful. And it definitely got a lot of popularity. So that was a perfect circle, not a tool, but Maynard. I'll just say Maynard. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Tool did do other songs about that. Wings for Marie, I think, is, is what it was uh, uh, about that same experience. So. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this sort of dovetails into another point that. Um, I wanted to make, and that's a definitely Antonio. I would recommend a second viewing for Hereditary. I liked it okay the first time. I liked it a, a lot more the second time. Um, and that's that Annie became a much more sympathetic character the second time. It was almost as though I saw this as a film about with her as the central protagonist about her trying to hold her family together. In, and that was a, a that was a sense that I didn't get the first viewing. I think there's a lot of work in both story and performance and uh, script that is trying to make us suspicious of or almost demonize Annie. But on a second viewing, when you know what's really going on, she becomes a much more tragic and interesting character who's really just trying to do the right thing and hold her family together uh, from this, uh, from a an outside evil force, a demonic force that's trying to tear it apart. Yeah. What is, what does she say in the, uh, in the, the, the group? I, I just don't want to put any more pressure on my family and more stress on my family. Right. I think that's an honest moment. And I think that's a, a an honest expression of her objective throughout the entire film as a character. I, go ahead, Antonio. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I'm really surprised that you didn't get that sense from it on the first viewing, because that seemed to me a, to be a central theme of the movie immediately, because not only does not only she say that in the therapy group, and it strikes me to, as a peripheral comment that Annie's character is basically honest throughout the entire movie. There isn't any scene where she, I think, that she particularly dissimulates um uh, particularly emotionally, um, but um, but you know when particularly in during the scene where uh, she's trying to get her husband to throw the sketchbook into the into the fire, um, I don't know how you watched that scene the first time through the movie and didn't get the sense that she really honestly cared about the outcomes here, that she really wanted her husband and her child to be okay, and she was willing to be burned alive in front of him in order to secure that. Okay. I, I actually, I, I think you're right about that scene. Definitely. But there, I think there's definitely scenes where she dissimulates. Um, the most obvious one being when she's describing the, the time when she slept, sleepwalked and doused her children in the, in the paint there. And she's telling, uh, you know, herself more than anyone else that of course she wouldn't want to do that. Of course she wouldn't want to kill her children. And to me, that sort of echoes this, uh, you know, a, again, a, a point that many real women have had, and this is a common theme in horror movies about women, that they might actually hurt their children. They might kill their children, right? That, that, that there's a part of them that wants to murder their children. And that's a horrifying thought. I mean, again, back to Stephen King, that was sort of the inspiration for The Shining, right? Is this how horrifying it would be to be driven mad to the point where you would kill your children. Um, and so I, I think in in that moment, you know, we're seeing a part of her, you know, or rather as she's talking about when she was sleepwalking, uh, what was in charge was a part of her subconscious that did want to kill her children. And that is a horrifying thought. And I think she is lying to herself about that, about why that was what was driving her. Isn't it suggested in the movie, though? Isn't it implied in the movie that the sleepwalking might be due to like demonic influence and stuff? I don't think explicitly. In fact, that was one of my questions I was going to ask you guys is, is had, you know, was it her unconsciously trying to kill her kids? Because I didn't think there was any justification for it. It does come after her kid later yeah. in the movie, um, clearly possessed, demon possessed. Uh, yeah, so but you, you definitely see a, a, a switch, though. So before that, yeah, I, don't, I, I didn't understand that before. I I think she was always trying to kill her children. She talked about how she tried to murder her child when he was in the womb, but I think it had actually some niceness to it, if you will. She was trying to save her kids from being possessed by demons. She knew there was something wrong with Charlie. That's why she got a boy name. That's why her mom was breastfeeding Charlie. She knew what was going on the whole time, especially since this was going on since her brother killed himself. So she knew all this shit. She wanted to stop it there. She could have stopped it there. If she would have burned her kids alive, it would actually, none of this would have gone down in this demon one <laughs> Place. Yeah, one way to do it. Can we and can we talk about I think that, that fantastic scene, which you know it ended up being a dream sequence, uh, but you didn't know that at first. Where she, you know where where she walks in and you know she, and it's the scene where she says you know I, I I never wanted to have you when she holds her hand over her mouth uh, and she asks is Charlie here you know and it's that that scene really upset me at first because it didn't make sense as they were replying, but then when they started doing the cut back and forth and then they eventually cut back to her and she's covered in the, the, the paint thinner. So I, I thought, you know, and then, then it made sense, right? The whole, okay. The reason why that, that dialogue was so fractured is because it was a dream, you know, again, it, we're, we're real, that fractured dialogue would have just been frustrating, but that's, that is the kind of fractured dialogue that you actually have in a dream. And, and, and yeah. And when you turn back to her and she's covered in that paint thinner, that was, and, and you see the fire. We don't actually see the fire. You see the light from the fire, right? Yeah, and I think all of that plays right into what Shara is talking about. I think she's absolutely right. 
she the part of her has wanted to kill her children from the get go, and and that again is tapping into this horrifying aspect of being a mother or being a parent, if you prefer, that part of you uh, is so fr afraid for your children that you think that the only way to protect them is to kill them. Yeah, we have a, a comment in the chat that says uh, basically that for Mr. Cam Cam, that hereditary is one big, I wish I would have aborted you in a film. Like that's, that's the movie. Late term yeah. abortion, the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I trying to like figure out how personal I want to get in this, but I think that there's certain scenes in this movie that that are the one we're talking about is heavy for me because I've 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 actually heard that from my mom. Like my mom looked at me in the face and said, "I wish I never would have had you." Like so, when I saw that and and didn't cover her mouth and go, "Oh, I'm sorry, I I shouldn't have said that." It was meant. So when I see that in the film, I was like, it does something. It messes me up. It makes me like. Even if I'm over it, I mean, it's a long time ago, but for me, it, it, ow, like it hurt. It was like, that sucks hearing that. You know what I mean? So that was one of the things that like, I think I have like a visceral reaction to certain things. Actually, this may trip you out. Um, when I was 13 years old, the last, well, I guess it was like the last time I ever lived with my mom and my dad. I was put into foster care when I was 13. The last day, the day that I was taken away, um, police officers came to our house, long story short, took my sister and I out and... Uh, saw the filth that we were living in. We were, it was a terrible situation. I won't go into it, but they took us out. And my mom realizing she had no recourse. She couldn't get us. She knew she was going to lose us. We were eventually, I mean, there was no way after that day that my mom was going to be able to, we weren't going to be able to live with her anymore. And um, as we were leaving, my mom, like in desperation, looked over at me and screamed, you can't do this. I am your mother. And that's one of the last memories I have of my mom living with her. So when I see a scene where Tony Collette is looking down going, I am your mother, I'm like, well, triggered, triggered, cue the vodka. You know, so like it was one of those things watching this where there were some sequences that really hit home with me in a very visceral way. And I'm sorry if that's super personal, but like watching this made me go, damn, like that I, I, that it's, it's hard to see the devaluation of a, a relationship that should be, I don't know, intuitively so valuable, you know, in front of me like that, like devalued in front of me like that. Um, in, in some sense, it's even worse to see it, to see the hand go over the mouth, like, I can't believe I said that to me. That actually, to some extent, makes it harder, makes it worse. So anyway, that's why this movie fucked me up. Off to you guys. Well, fuck, how do you follow that up? <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Uh, it actually kind of uh, pushes back to what, what uh, that whole sort of idea that you should be able to divorce your parents, right? Just to just emancipate yourself from them. That you know, I'm your mother. Yeah. So what? Yeah. You, know, you have no power over me, a la Freddy Krueger, right? All right. So I'm going to bring up a Thanksgiving film that's a romantic <laughs> comedy from the '90s, just to, so that we can be a little bit, you know, lighter about this, but still tie into it. And there's this great scene in Home for the Holidays, which is literally one of my favorite uh, holiday films of all time. And uh, there's a, a moment when two people are two people are having an argument. They're related, and uh, the, the one of the people say, "If I met you on the street and you gave me your number, I would throw it away." And Holly Hunter comes back. Uh, we're family. We don't. We don't have to be friends. And I think that's a really like that. That 
Home for the Holidays touched me. And uh, quite possibly the best segue palate cleanser in this show so far. Exactly. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., Jodie Foster directed Home for the Holidays. That's mostly a comedy, and uh, zero people get burned alive in that film. That's can I guarantee you can yeah, take that? That's, that's always important. That's always important. I, you know what I really liked about this movie that we haven't touched on too much is the peppered like jump scare sequences. Like I, I thought they were great in this movie. There were only a few, and they're really like maybe an hour into the film is when they even start. But I've always said like jump sequences, scare, the dark flipping the switch, seeing the light, there's something in the corner. This film did a really good job of there's something in the corner, you have to look twice. And I especially would admonish Antonio, if you watch this film again, I mean, maybe you caught it in the first viewing, but if you watch this film again, in the last hour of the film, look in the corners during sequences where Ari Aster wants you looking at the character's face. That's all I'm gonna say. Like, look at the corners for the last hour of this film. There's a lot of things that are you, you, you that are subtle that you don't necessarily catch unless you're looking for them. Um, I didn't catch it till the second or third time, but I liked that. I like that it's in the movie. Those sorts of things are in the movie, but they're not the movie, right? And a movie entirely based on that shit is fleeting. But having them in, I think, is important. Like, there's some sequences where oh, shit, where where Charlie's head falls off and rolls off, and it ends up being that ball. That is fantastic. And there's only a couple sequences like that in the film. And I think that's a good, like it's like, it's like salt and pepper, man. You don't just jam it on everything you have on every piece of food. You it's subtle. You put it a little bit here, a little bit there. I liked how this film did that. It was showing that they're all toys. And it, you know, it's it, even the head removal thing is something all of us did with our Barbie dolls all the time. Their heads were removed, and then we'd have to go to our parents and put it back on and then we take it off again for some unknown reason and you know it's it's uh, our way of manipulating our world around us and how we played with those toys so it's yeah I'm, her head rolling off and turning into a ball but I also found it interesting because there's elements like that when you watch children play and I worked as a daycare worker I have a daughter I've watched how she plays with her toys there's a lot of times where you're like what the hell is that doing there and you'll ask your kid and they'll have the most poignant answer as to why they have a dinosaur, you know, hanging out with Barbie in her dream house. And you're like, all right, um, I'm scared of you now. And I'm going to have to go write my journal for a little bit. But uh, that's interesting. <laughs> but it's that's just how children are when they play. They're a little fucked up, actually. You'll find those little demented sides of children when you play with them, actually. And it's kind of interesting and fascinating that they added that element with this film. But um, I, I think also when it comes to like those little things that were in the corner, when we were watching it, we had like five of us on the couch watching it together. And we kept on hearing one person going, ooh, ooh, ooh. And we're like, where's Waldo? Exactly. <laughs> Someone saw something. Exactly, exactly. Like if you go back and watch the film a second or third time, look in the corners. That's all I'm gonna say. Well, damn, now I feel also like look I at the so much that I gotta go back and watch it a third time because yeah, I, 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 I feel like I'm, I'm probably missed most of these. Also, look at the lights, the motion sensor lights. They play with that a couple times. The lights go on and off at certain moments, and it indicates that the people, the occult people, are running around the house. Yep. Oh, yeah, that, that's really good, Jim. And that also reminds me of something else. Is there was a, a bit very subtle, and I actually had to rewind and watch it several times to make sure I was getting it right, but I'm pretty sure I am. It's, it, it, you know, it, right after the scene where, where the pages are flipping and, and you know, the, the, the drawings are being drawn, there's a hand that reaches up and grabs the book 
but it's not actually Annie's hand. It's Charlie's hand. You know, it, 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 it's it's so subtle and it's so quick that you miss it. But if you actually stop and look, it's not an adult woman woman's hand. No and it's shit. Not, it's not the color of the shirt that Annie's wearing in the scene. It's it's the color of of, of Charlie's shirt that she's wearing when she dies. You know, it, it's real quick and it's real subtle. But I really liked it. Yeah, they put a lot of wow. They put a lot of effort into this, into little things like that. I noticed in this film, it definitely made it quality. Did you, did you guys have anything else you want to add about the movie? Any things we, we've done? The Dollhouse stuff, we've done some of the cinematic stuff, acting stuff, uh, Noah triggered to hell stuff, uh, history of payment. Anything else you guys want to add? Yeah, I think I, I want to. So go ahead. You go ahead first. Gracious as always. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about criticisms about problems we've talked about the world building but uh, i think that there are some some shortcomings of the film which i think we you know we spent a lot of time praising it but it, it, it's worth exploring some of those problems um but so i want to put that on the docket i don't necessarily need to be what we get into right now i have two okay, complaints. Uh, go ahead mine are funny though uh, oh. i hate i hate her short pants what the fuck are those ugly ass short pants with boots? What the fuck is she wearing? I kept I kept on getting distracted by how horrible her fashion sense was. Um, but the other thing is, I think there was a missed opportunity at the end when you're like looking at, you know, this new demon god that's gonna you know lead this cult. I thought that Nine Inch Nails uh, Hurt would have been such a good song to play in the background. You know, I wear this crown of shit upon this lifeless chair. I hurt myself today. That would have been so fantastic as an ending song. But th those are my two complaints. <laughs> I no, I was I gotta totally disagree. Clouds was perfect for me. That one. Uh, uh, and it's the old version, like the happy Joni Mitchell clouds that uh, I really enjoyed. So, yeah, that- You're more fucked really up. You're more fucked up. <laughs> Go ahead. I just said you're more fucked up. <laughs> that messed me up more. <laughs> uh, all right. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, I was going to say, what do you guys think that the choice of um, Judy Collins' performance of uh, both sides now uh, meant as far as the end credits? Um, yeah, wait, you thought, who, who did the performance? I think it's the Judy Collins performance. Oh, I thought it was the old Joni Mitchell performance. Okay, anyway, um, yeah, I thought it worked for me because, like, that song is all about how, uh, you know, the character, even as she gets older, doesn't understand, uh, what love, life, uh, clouds are anymore, and that really... That, that kind of thematically worked as a sense of um, how our lives, even after we live them to some degree, don't make sense. I like. I thought it worked very well. So, wow, this is a this is a big point in the chat. A lot of people were saying thank you for bringing this up because they thought they were the only ones that thought about it. So one person, a cat, said soundtrack dissonance. Um, interesting. Yeah, so I checked it. It looks like it's, it's Judy Collins playing both sides now, is what the uh, uh, okay. the internet is telling me. Uh, I don't know the song or any of the versions, so I can't really speak about it. I mean, they have a demon who's coming in. It could be about, you know, hell on earth, and I don't know. There's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of ways you could interpret it, but I don't know. I, I've I, I would have liked something maybe a little less happy, but I have this problem of hating happy music over really fucked up shit. It it it's, if it sounds too cheerful to me, it 
it bothers me more. Um, there was a radio show I used to listen to all the time where they would talk about sad music over uh, or sad stories over happy music. And they would talk about these horrendous things that went on in the news, but they would have like some happy children's music playing in the background and it messed me up more. So I don't know. I, yeah, I think I have a problem with that personally now. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was wrong. It is, uh, the, the album is called clouds and the song is called both sides. Now originally written by jo Joni Mitchell and you're right. This is the different, uh, performance of it. Uh, so correction, uh, so the, in the comments below, I'm sure. Okay, so, so something which hasn't come up yet, but I'm curious if you guys noticed it, because I noticed it a lot the first time, and I noticed it even more the second time, is that Tony Collette says the word please in this film more often than Quentin Tarantino says fuck. It's just, it, it, it's please, 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 and it, I mean, again, I think the performance is phenomenal, Um, but that was just too goddamn much. I think, you know, they, they really should have used some different takes, I think, or, or and told her to dial it back. I mean, again, it, it was, it's just, it's blubbering and it, it, it irks me. And, and when they, and when they told me. her, when they told her to dial it back, they should have said, please, please dial it back. Yeah, you're right. There, that is a lot of this film. I, I mean, I saw it as a kind of just a hyperbolic desperation, you know. Like, but you're right. It, it I, yeah, yep. Oh, maybe that's purposeful though to like show how irksome somebody who's pleading is. I don't know. Well, just even in the scene where she's trying to get her husband and Peter to do the little séance, there's like fifty fucking pleases there. <laughs> like just in that scene. Yeah, it's just there's there's just too much of it. I mean, again, I, I get that she's desperate and I get that she's uh, losing her mind in a lot of ways. But there's got to be other ways to do that without repeating that one word so many times. What I was curious about is at the end of the film, I guess this is a criticism at the end of the film. So now we have Payman, Peter, Payman, Charlie, whatever. Like what now? Like, does Payman take over the world? Does he have powers? Does he, he like yeah. metaphysically what happens now is, is like the government going to be ruled? Like what? His power. Uh, and they mentioned this in the film, but also I went and read the grimoire about it. Um, essentially he can tell you every truth. Like he will tell you exactly the truth of it. So now his, right. will know everything they will literally know every possible ah. thing is to ever know. So that's why she's like, now you can tell us our, you know, the truths. And so it's like power. So it's like power. So it's like, uh, it's, like, power. It's, yeah, it's, like Bilderberg. <laughs> yeah. it's like Bilderberg. They will be the richest and most powerful people on earth. Yeah. It's like coming back from back to the future. <laughs> that makes sense. Wow. That's okay. All right. I, I dig that more. Cause that's one of the questions I had is I was like, all right. So now you have that you did all this work through generations of tragedy and pain through this family. Like you have King Payman here. The fuck like what do you get he's, he's gonna stay in the treehouse is he gonna go like cast other demons bring them like i know that's kind of a i know the movie isn't intending to answer those questions but it was one of the things that it it made me think of them and i didn't want to think of them i wanted so, to focus on the other raw visceral shit going on yeah there's, there's a clive barker movie you guys may or may not have seen it called the lord of illusions um it, there's a a, a a sequence in that where you know again there's like a, a you know a, an apocalyptic preacher and his you know he dies in the beginning and his worshipers bring him back uh, at, at the very end and and after his worshipers bring him back one of the first things he does is kill all his worshipers which i thought was nice because you know he basically says you people are pathetic you just waited around for me and you did nothing um and i kind of i mean again going back to your point about the ex expression on peter's face you know maybe he can tell them the truth but that's no promise that he's going to right i mean he he's the king he can do whatever the hell he wants 
Yeah, I still opt for my Bob Ross ending. He just ignores all of them, starts painting clouds. <laughs> he should have got out a guitar and just played the best song in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he like demands a sitar and just it turns into it like a hippie's cult. It's like, I'm not going to give you any information. Just yeah. So here's another sort of criticism I had of the film. Um, and this is sort of going back to, I mean, in some ways back to the point about the rules. Um, but maybe, or maybe I missed it. Maybe you guys got a better sense of it. What are the conditions under which payment can occupy a body? Because, you know, apparently it's in, he, he's in Charlie since she's born. Um, and then he goes into the ether and then goes into Annie in the third act and then finally transfers over to like, what, 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 what are the conditions under which payment can do this? Lots of rules that are broken Demon constantly. Stuff. Yeah. Lot, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ethereal. Cause you're right. There's, there's payment, uh, you know, like, you know, take your phone and make it, like shine into the sun and like you know, blind someone like that's there's that payment like that little reflective payment um and then there's payment in charlie which i guess you could argue happened when ellen breastfed uh charlie so there's that let's go that route right so that, i think that's why that's in the film uh, at least that part um there's say the spells in your home remember those words all over the house there's say the spells and then payment can take over anyone in that house willy nilly. I believe that's what was happening, which is why he suddenly, or or maybe it's just Annie come to think of it. Cause I think he just takes over Annie. He could have just taken over Peter at that point. So let's scratch well, that. He could take over really anybody that has the hereditary line. That's why the, the dad is useless and pointless cause he doesn't have that hereditary mm. line. But uh, you will notice that there is Zaza's uh, wrote on the wall. And if you guys know anything about the Ouija board or any of that kind of stuff, um, Zozo or Zaza or Mama, if those, if that word gets put in when you're on the Ouija board, it unleashes this kind of Loki type demon who tries to fuck up your life. And so, um, and, and this is in a lot of movies and a lot of lore. It's been around for, you know, a while now. And you'll, you'll find stuff on the internet about people who've got the Z-A-Z-A -Z -A happen on their Ouija and you better say goodbye now or that thing is going to come into your life. You better get off that Ouija board now or it's going to start messing with you. And, and that is actually real lore that people go by. So it, definitely the director or the writer had done his homework on demon shit um, and how you get them out. But Zazas being written on the wall would definitely make it open for the demon to come into the house and be able to possess people. Yeah, but the rules were weird, I think, Garrett. I think that was a huge criticism of the film. And, and uh, there, was that, there was a line in the book, again, which said that he, again, I paused it this time around so I could read the whole page, uh, about how he goes after the most vulnerable. You know, he can go to the most vulnerable, which makes a certain degree of sense. But again, you know, who? it's not at all clear to me that Annie is the most vulnerable right after her husband gets burnt up or that, you know, Peter is the most vulnerable when he's in the class or whatever is going on. You know, it's, it can, if, if that was the rule, it should have somehow been executed clearer. They should have watched session nine for the uh, vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring up uh, one point. What was, what was your guys take on Gabriel Burns character, Steven and, I mean, to some degree, Gabriel Byrne's performance, I really liked it, but uh, what did you think of that character and how he fit into the thematic uh, issues that we've been talking about this evening? Um, the way I take it is this has happened in Drag Me to Hell and many other films. Uh, the skeptic asshole who's trying to actually rationalize things in a normal way, so fuck him. He's dumb. He doesn't get it. 
and he'll never get it because he's trying to rationalize things in the in the right and proper sense that you should actually rationalize things. I mean, thinking oh. that your wife is uh, faking your daughter's voice is a form of um, trying to get attention makes sense since her mom had DID. Like she had multiple personality disorder. So her the wife exhibiting some some signs of having that mental illness as well. He's like, knock it off. You're scaring our son. You're being an asshole. And like it, his responses made sense in the real world. But he was also ignoring facts like the flame blew up, the the glass moved across. Like there's obviously something going on in your house, bro. But the mansplainer. Let's <laughs> feminist interpretation here. There we go. <laughs> in some ways, I mean, again, I, I don't mean to put too much weight on art, but it, it is unfortunate because, I mean, again, I consider myself, you know, a devout rationalist and realist and naturalist and such. Um, so when, you know, people start to actually encounter weird things in their life, movies like this might actually encourage them to take the, the supernatural more seriously. And that's an unfortunate consequence and side effect, I think, of, of this kind of story. Yeah, I think it wrongfully depicts people like us. I, I think it depicts us as people that all that are hard headed about our positions as opposed to being open minded. And, and I think it's a shitty thing to do, but it's great for storylines. You know, there has to be that person who's like, you're just nuts. OK, you're nuts. And it's like, no, and I can't just magically make fire explode out of a candle. You know, <laughs> I yeah, don't I mean, have that. I, mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you guys know this, but I actually got a PM from someone when we, remember when we did our session on A Dark Song, the Irish horror film, A Dark Song? I actually got a PM from someone who like, was like concerned that talking about it would cause like real demonic issues for people listening and coming into the house. And I was like, what? So yeah, for those watching, um, so the way most of us here know each other, like in tone, I think uh, with the exception of Jim, most, uh, like all of us know each other, know each other from the old days of YouTube where we discussed theology and atheism. That's what the old days of YouTube were really for. <laughs> and um, we all know each other from those things. I used to be a Christian. I am now an atheist. And I think everyone here, uh, I haven't really traced this out with Jim, but I think all of us are atheists. Um, so, you know, so Jim is not an atheist. He is clearly a Muslim man. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so yeah, so that's how most of us know each other. So when we say, oh yeah, like Mr. L we're speaking from that person, that's how we know each other. So anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there and, um, we haven't had any weird things. If you're watching whoever that was, we have not had any weird things, um, since a dark song. Um, I did wake up over my wife with a bloody knife. Uh, there was some writing on the wall, but that's all normal. That's all normal. Other than that, nothing crazy. It's just Saturday, right? Yeah, that was just Saturday night. Okay. Yeah, yeah, every Saturday. Um, yeah, I think you're right on about Gabriel Byrne's character about Stephen Shaver. That's kind of how I I saw him as well. Um, I kind of wish he was a little more developed. I think that this falls into the trap of being one of the many science fiction slash horror slash yeah, science fiction slash horror films that are anti-science. And um that that's kind of a complaint that I have with the genre. I sort of like the the films like The Martian that are pro-science science fiction films um, and uh, pro-curiosity science fiction films. And the way Gabriel Byrne's character uh, was, was portrayed as uh, so logical and rational that he was unable to see the writing on the wall almost literally. And that 
that almost took over some of his care and affection for his wife and the emotional connection he had with his family. Um, I, I didn't really like the way that was sort of underguarding the story. Um, but overall, I, you know, I love Gabriel Byrne. So I was just happy to see him in a movie. But I yeah. did see a parallel with Antichrist, right? Um, and actually part of the storyline that they took out of the, the script was that he was originally her doctor and then they had that wrong yeah. kind of relationship. So, and you can see that distance between them and that that's, uh, you, they're not exactly a close couple. Um, that's, that's very well exhibited. So um, I think him constantly trying to psychoanalyze her and not treating her as a partner and an equal in the relationship has caused a lot of the problems that they have and the underlying issues that they have. And he's continuing to try to psychoanalyze her instead of being on her side and working with her to solve the the mystery that's going on inside of their home. So I think you're right. That's very astute. Mansplainer. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, but I... As I'm hearing you guys talk about this, I actually, I mean, yeah, I, the, the criticism of his character, again, you know, he, you know, he's sort of a, the second fiddle in, in more ways than one, right? I mean, he, his character doesn't really show up on most of the posters and stuff like that. Tony Collette's clearly the sort of the star of the show, um, which is a little weird for Gabriel Byrne, you know, because he's a pretty uh, solid actor in, and of, in his own right. Um, but also, yeah, it, it almost does feel now like his character is there more just for someone for Tony Collette to bounce off of rather than to be a character in his own right. And that is a little, uh, um, yeah, a, a little, little thin, I suppose. Yeah, he was definitely underdeveloped, especially since he has that face where like he's been on a, tons of movies that you could probably peg him on, even though you can't peg the movie. You're like, that. I know that guy. He's from like 30 movies I've seen. He's a great actor. Why is he so underdeveloped in this film? You know, well, he's in my favorite movie of all time. So, uh, uh, Miller's Crossing, which Gary quoted oh. perfectly, and uh, no one knows anybody not that well. Uh, no one knows anyone not that well. Uh, it was a great Miller's Crossing line. So, I've been a fan of his since 1990. So, last sort of uh, criticism for me, and again, yeah. this, this is somewhat coming back, it, it, it echoes what we we're talking about last time. We were talking about Bug. I think both Bug, or not Bug, uh, um, uh, Donnie Darko, uh, both Donnie Darko and this film have you know, sort of a mythology in place that's not really present on the screen. And you either have to know about it in advance going into it or research it afterwards. And I wouldn't say that's necessarily something I think is inherently problematic in some ways. I mean, I think you know, Blair Witch Project is another good example of a film like that. Um, in some ways, that can sort of lead to a richer experience because you know it sort of draws you out of the film and into your your life uh, uh, in, in effective and powerful ways and makes it stick around. But the, if the film can't survive on its own two legs, you know, if if it can't sort of make at least a certain amount of coherent sense and stand up on its own sort of internal presentation um, uh, without sort of broad cultural uh, context, uh, 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 then I think that's sort of a weakness of the film. You know, it, it's it's it, it's saying that the film isn't going to really tell you the full story. For the full story, you have to know all this demonological background. Um, and that to me is, you know, again, I don't necessarily call it weak writing necessarily, but it is sort of disappointing because uh, it, it's it, it, it's requiring something of your audience that isn't that doesn't isn't required of them in the viewing. It's requiring of them either before they come in or after they leave. And that to me is is asking the wrong kind of asking too much from an artist. 
And I think that uh, what you're, some of the, this film's defenders would say, well, everything that you want is in the movie. It's in those two pages in insert shot exposition. Um, and uh, that it was almost too quick. I think you're going back to some of the things that I was talking about earlier about the world building of this film and how the world building is, uh, is either inconsistent or can be explained by, well, he's just a demon of mischief, which is a fairly weak exposition or uh, explanation. Any way to fix these, um, any way the, to fix these issues is really unsatisfying, and, but it's sort of this, yeah, this Star corner. Trek does the same thing with a lot of their like explanations of things and it's entertaining enough. I mean, you know, those What's little, that? Star Trek does these kinds of explanations oh, of like, oh, it's it's the weird mechanism thing called the wonkadoo and, and the, yeah. that's what describes what's happening. Ooh, but They magic machine shit their way out of problems. Yeah, like, uh, yeah I think that's, uh, that's an issue though, because you're, it, you're painting yourself into an artistic corner in those, in those situations. And I think that both Star Trek sometimes paints itself into an artistic corner the same way Hereditary does. Uh, how to get out of those is either to do uh, uh, magic science shit and get yourself out of it or magic, uh, magic demon shit and that gets your way out of it. Um, the best stories are the ones that don't require that that are able to do set up reminder payoff and it all flows together in a perfect uh perfect hole so yeah there, there's a standing expression amongst star trek fans called uh, hand wavium you know anytime that they they paint themselves into a corner that's their deus machina you know they just they hand wavium it away and yeah i think it's a sign of bad writing um and you know again the, if there is any overall weakness in this film i think it is in the screenplay it's in the writing uh not in the acting or the directing uh which was in the cinematography you know the other art uh, the other technical sides were all phenomenal are you guys going to give ari aster another shot so this is his first film right so you, i mean he's 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 clearly going to be able to make a lot more a lot more movies after this are you guys going to give him another shot yeah yeah i kind of hated the first outing but i'll give him another shot hate wow okay i am really curious to hear your final thoughts on this antonio uh normally i play the role of the iconoclast so <laughs> i'm uh I, it's sort of happy that you get the bad internet comments instead of me that's perfect you, you're talking about reversing the polarity we're just reversing who who the, the hate monger is here so <laughs> well did you guys have anything else you want to add about hereditary before we we close up shop before we score uh, it. All I'd like to say is A24 just keeps knocking out of the park for me. Like, right? uh, I just went and saw eighth grade too. And it, it, like every time I see A24 now, I'm like, ah, <laughs> good. So um, I'm, I'm really impressed with what they've been creating as of late. Yeah, they've been popping out some good ones. Um, so let's, uh, let's score this. I like, uh, let's just for shiggles, let's start with Antonio. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so things that I liked about the movie. The movie's cinematography was excellent. Um, the framing of the shots was great. The lighting was great. The, uh, like I said, I think that the, as far as the editing went, several of the scenes went on too long. There's a certain, uh, there's a certain effect in certain, especially horror movies, but it can take place in dramas, like Barry Lyndon, I think, is a decent example of this, um, where, if you actually think about a lot of them, if you if you take out the movies uh, like you know five or six most intense moments, 
and imagine the movie played through with no soundtrack, the movie would be insanely boring. <laughs> and this is one of those kinds of movies where there, there's a lot of stretched out stuff that that is punctuated by extreme emotional intensity dialed up to 11. And ultimately, that was, and maybe this is the movie's strength for a lot of people. The thing that ultimately I didn't like about the movie was that it felt like the movie was trying to, it was not only a story about manipulation, but it was a story that was trying to manipulate me. You know, they picked um, a character who dies, who's going to be a, a girl, she's going to be 13 years old, and she's going to die in an exceptionally, excessively, pornographically gruesome way that is calculated for maximum emotional impact so that you feel torn up and, you know, the, the actors are given the uh, opportunity to just, you know, wring the, the acting material to the absolute limit of its human potential. Um, and, uh, you know, the girl herself is this weird character who is given a, a weird sound that she makes that has literally no connection to her character whatsoever other than that she makes the sound specifically so that we can then hear the sound later on and be creeped out by it by thinking that she's around. Um, so there's a number of, of choices that the movie makes that, that um, strive to manipulate the viewer on an emotional level, to try to crank up the viewer's emotional intensity by using you know, cinematographic tricks. To some extent, that's inherent to the medium. Um, but in this case, I felt like the movie, the movie leaned much too heavily on those elements. Um, and so, as Garrett says, if there's a weakness in the movie, it, the weakness is in the screenplay. And so I think I think the screenplay really leaned very very heavily on um, some some fundamentally weak storytelling elements to sell a very beautiful package um, that that where there's not a whole lot underneath the hood. Um, you know, the, it, it it has depth in terms of directorial uh, artistry and symbolism, and that's why I think that I would be willing to see some more of Ari Aster's uh, subsequent work. You know, he clearly has an eye for what's going to look good. He clearly has an eye for what's going to um, shock the viewer and play well on the camera. And so I think if some of these um, excesses and crutches sort of get knocked out from underneath him, his work will be very, very compelling indeed. As it is, I think I'd probably give the movie a 6 out of 10. Um, for being very pretty and well put together. But like I said, um, I feel like the, the screenplay it is a little bit on the shallow end um, and could have been taken in much more in a much more compelling direction with a couple different tweaks that might have resulted in a much more interesting movie that explored some of these issues more, in a more profound direction. That's my take. Like Noah said, you know, he actually appreciated that it didn't go in any one particular direction. So um, this may be just a case of differing tastes. But yeah, um, as far as whether I found the movie scary, um, because I wasn't able to identify an antagonistic element in the movie sufficiently well, you know, just when you think it's going to be the creepy girl, she dies. Just when you think it's going to be her spirit, it, you know, that we, there's this whole subplot about the mother. Um, it really prevented me from getting into the, the movie as and, and getting as scared as I might have been, as, as, as gripped by the movie as I might have been. Um, but I do think that the jump scares in particular were done very effectively. They were, they were well set up. They were interspersed nicely. Um, I think that was an element that Noah definitely called out correctly. 
Um, so that's my review. So these are very well thought out um, responses in a nice summary. And so now, Antonio, I'm going to read you some of the comments in chat because I think you will really appreciate these. So one person said, Antonio, I am disappointed, young man. That's it. Uh, another person said, your opinion is wrong. That may be my favorite so far. I think that's great. Uh, another person said, Antonio, I usually appreciate your thoughts no longer. I'm not making these up, by the way. There's a couple smiley faces after. But that's winky face. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, there's, yeah, they're, they're fucking. They're, no, I don't think any of these people are super serious. I told him to give you shit, actually, if you read the chat. Uh, your opinion is bad and you should feel bad. You get the point. It just goes on from there. But uh, great, that was a, a great, great summary. And I think I, I personally think a lot of that is fair. I think it's just a difference in taste. But um, anyway, sorry. I had to give you shit. Uh, Garrett, what did you think? Watch it again because you are wrong is another one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, I'm not insensitive to some of uh, Antonio's criticisms. Again, like again, he quoted me in saying, I think that the, the the flaws are largely in the screenplay, and I I, I sort of stand by that too. Um, but I also want to echo something else I said earlier is I again, I didn't enjoy the film. You know, I, I I wasn't sort of you know enraptured with it. I didn't feel good going into it. But it also you know wasn't like a film I think that was sort of designed to make to unnerve me in in the way that some you know uh, certain uh, films are. Um, I just I felt again you know I'm large when it comes to films I'm largely driven by uh, by plot by story and by screenplay because that's the, the thing I sort of understand most about the filmmaking process. Um, and, uh, so those, so the first time I watched it, uh, those weaknesses felt particularly strong. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it more the second time through, uh, I think, and as I often do, because I'm able to sort of put those criticisms aside and focus more on what the film is doing well. And the, you know, the, the strengths of this film are, are pretty unambiguous. We've touched on several of them, the wonderful acting, um, the fantastic cinematography again. I think sort of the 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 the, the tone, uh, the, the the lighting was all really good. The themes really good. And this is a, even though I didn't sort of enjoy it or have fun with it, it's a film that is worth talking about. And that you know you 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 it's a conversation piece. Um, so uh, in that respect, I think it's a it, it's a serious success. Um, you know, there aren't too many films I've seen in the last year that I've wanted to talk about as much as I've wanted to talk about this film to hear what other people say um, and to, to, to point out some of the nuances. Uh, so th those are real successes. So on, on a 10 point scale, I would give it an eight and a half. Wow, that's really high for you. I just want to point that out. Go ahead, Jim. What did you think? Oh, I think Jim's going to go last, but... Um... Um, so I just want to, uh, argue with Antonio a little, um, <laughs> um, as far as like the slow burn of, of the film, I've been watching a lot of Italian neorealism. So it kind of felt natural to me because I've been watching so much of like, you know, Antonioni and like other weird ass fucking shit that has the long shots that seems like, why are we lingering here? I, I, I honestly think a lot of those shots and, and like, almost like that Joel and Ethan Cohen where you, they're almost like the characters are looking at you. I think it's to add a realism and make you feel like you're a part of this thing that you should be detached to because they're pretty much all toys and puppets, right? But I think it was trying to make you feel off-putting about the fact that they present this idea that these are superficial, non-object type people 
they're not real people, but then also making you feel like you're experiencing it along with them and it feels real. So I, I think they were trying to mess. I think that's what they were trying to add a vibe to, to make it uncomfortable and, and make you feel off, even though nothing really has happened yet. You're like, I don't feel right. I feel uncomfortable. Um, and as far as what the antagonist is, um, I feel like the antagonist of the film is fate, much like uh, Final Destination. Uh, it's it's not something they can control. This is inevitability. This is where it's going to end. Um, it's almost like a, a creature you can't go after and attack. And that adds an element of fear to the, the film that people like me get more freaked out by, probably. Um, and yeah, that probably is a taste thing um, that that people like Noah and I might get a little more freaked out by that kind of thing. Like we want some element of control in our lives and I think it causes us discomfort. So um, I, I think it was purposely done the way it was, but um, I, I loved this film. I love the vibe of it. I love the look of it. Um, I love the characters. Um, the writing wasn't the most perfect writing I've ever seen, but it did fuck my head up. I will probably watch this movie over and over again because I bought it and I'm going to be mad that I didn't, talk about certain things in the show. And I'm probably in about a year being gonna be like, can we talk about Hereditary again? Cause I miss some things and I wanna talk about it. And I, I know this is gonna be one of those films I'm gonna revisit over and over and over. Um, I give it a nine out of 10. It is, uh, it's really high up there for me. It fucked me up and it's one of the best films I've seen all year, so. Okay, uh, I'll go uh, real quick. Um, so yeah, I, I when I first saw this film, the world building really bothered me, and the way this film didn't seem to follow its own rules, and the way the film kind of pulled out the rug from under me. Um, I, it wasn't that I was. I, I thought that I, I'm not I'm not bothered by films on principle that pull out the rug from under me. What I'm bothered by are when they don't seem to earn it and they don't seem to um, set up the way they pull out the rug from under me so that I look back upon the film and go, oh, shit, I should have gotten that. And I didn't. You win the artistic uh, battle of intellects in this case. And that didn't uh, that, that didn't happen with this film. I think this film take some some unfortunate and cheating um, sidesteps and 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 rug pullings and all of that stuff. So it the, those things really bothered me on the first viewing to the extent that I gave it a three and a half out of five star scale. Uh, that is uh, that is a testament to the pro performance of Tony Collette, Gabriel Byrne. Um, the young actress who plays um, Charlie, whose name I used to have. I think her first name's Millie. Millie, uh, yeah. Yeah, please get that in uh, the other one. Anyway, um, so I, I really enjoyed these performances and the cinematography and the fact that this film was so dense and interesting that I wanted to continue talking to Garrett about it for the rest of the week that he was here after we saw it. Uh, we saw it uh, together during a week during the summer and then for the rest of the week, we would just be driving and like, hey, you know, that scene where she throws the book into the, so that, that those that's the thing I love about film is that it stays with you. It, to steal a phrase from Noah, puts a stone in my shoe. Um, this film increased by a full half star rating on my, uh, on my second viewing. 
Uh, my second viewing was the one that really, I, I enjoyed it so much more. And then my viewing today, which was uh, some total third time seeing it, um, it, it, it improved and I started seeing it from different perspectives. And uh, while I still think there are issues with the world building, I give it a four stars out of five and eight out of 10. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. So um, I, it's a recommend for me and it's a, it's a deeper film than we get most times. And uh, for that, I give it a, uh, for that, I'm, I'm really happy about it. So Noah, let's close this out. 27 out of 10. No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, most everyone agrees with you in chat. So the, the consensus is eight, eight, uh, nine, nine, nine. Wow. That's really high. Um, yeah, I, so I want to make the distinction between like how scary a film is to you and if it's a good horror film, because I think those can be two different things. Okay. So hereditary is an incredibly scary film to me. Like I'd give it a nine and a half out of 10 in terms of how much it scares me. I'm hard pressed to think of many films that scare me to that degree. But of course, I'm coming at this with a lot of personal baggage and stuff that reminds me of things. So is it really the film or is it that I got all this other stuff? Whatever, it, it, it definitely scares me when I watch Hereditary. I've seen it four times and every time I watch it, I find another reason to wig myself out, um, which is a fun experience, right? I think that's sort of the fun of horror to a certain extent is exploring who you are, why things scare you, taking a step back, playing with those miniatures, so to speak, trying to get metaphorical here, uh, not, not going very well. But yeah, I so nine and a half out of 10 in terms of how much it scared me, you know, overall I'd give the film a nine. I mean, it, it's unique um, in a lot of its uh, approaches. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking? It doesn't commit one way to where all of the other things that you were thinking suddenly go out the window. It doesn't commit too hard to mental illness or um, to, um, yeah, there's a lot of ways it could go. And there's a who done it all the way to the end. And I think the way they played with you and manipulated you works to the to the it just sort of flows with the film. And that's what the film is about to a large extent. It's about manipulation. And uh, so I dug that. Um, the, the way I took this really was about power, you guys. It was about not necessarily about um, you know, it, it was about the removal of the things that like if I was to take away or you were to take away particular things that your mom gave you, whether those things are hereditary, like genetic shit or environmental shit, would you still be you? How do you, how do you get rid of those things if they're negative? I mean, one of the things we didn't discuss is what if those things are positive, right? Like maybe that's a real problem with my view. Not everything, right? has to be negative that you get from your your family. So, it, you know, so it, it just made me explore the idea of never fully being your own. That's a scary concept to me. So I got to give it a nine. I'd give it a 9.5 in terms of fear. I, I still think if we're talking about horror films in the last 20 years or since the millennium, I, I'd still give it to It Follows as being genuinely, like genuinely more terrifying to me, given the way I interpret, the way I understand It Follows to be talking about the cessation of experience, like just about death and understanding your place in the world and that one day you're not going to be a person. It just like the reflection of that through adolescence. That's more fundamental in a lot of ways, I think, more, I say deeper, but it's it's certainly, it's it's more raw. It's, it's a, yeah, maybe I would say it's deeper. It's a layer deeper than familial connection. So in that sense, I think that exploration is something that has the capacity to be more fear-inducing for me than, um, than hereditary, but it's, I mean, I'm gonna be honest, man, it's close. Uh, I loved hereditary. By far my favorite horror film of 2018, 
nothing comes close in the last few years. I, I, I was going to say get out in 2017, but nowhere near, I mean, get out's nowhere near hereditary. Um, granted, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm like a really small little white dude. So I, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's part of it. But uh, yeah, I, I love hereditary. Hereditary is definitely my favorite horror film of the year. I don't think anything will beat it. Um, so I got to give it a 9.5 fear inducing overall nine out of 10, uh, which would make it my second highest horror film on this list that we've covered. Um, so overall, I think this was a really good, I think, I think this was a good selection. I'm glad we did it. Um, next week, I shouldn't say next week in two weeks. Uh, so we do this podcast every two weeks. We do our live shows every two weeks so on the 30th. We are doing, I saw the devil. I saw the devil is a Korean horror film that is, uh, well, it's, I'm gonna blow it for you, but it's about revenge. It is an ultra violent, crazy, I don't even call it a horror film, to be honest with you. I mean, it is one of the things that we do in this podcast is we select a lot of films that aren't necessarily traditional horror films. They can be suspense. They can be thriller. Um, we did The Lobster, for God's sakes. We did, you know, so, I mean, yeah. So um, uh, we're doing, yes, yeah, Korean horror film. Um, uh, we're going to be doing it in two weeks. Uh, definitely check it out. It's on, uh, it's on YouTube. I think it's on Hulu and Amazon. It's been out for quite a few years. Um, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, also, you guys probably don't know this, but Jim and Garrett have their own YouTube channel, and I'm totally going to plug it right now. So they have Jim and Garrett at the movies. So if you go to YouTube, put Jim and Garrett at the movies, um, and they do things well beyond horror films. So they cover, you know, basically films that are coming out now. Um, they did, I, well, I'll let you talk about it, Jim. You guys do kind of recent stuff. Sure. Yeah, so we do uh, one recent film uh, that we our metric for it is review the most interesting film that's coming out uh, this week. We don't actually always uh, select the right film because this week we selected Predator um, and we tie that thematically with a movie club entry, um, which in this case is Predator. Uh, so we'll be comparing the 2018 Predator with 1987 Predator. We also cover a news item. This week we're going to be covering Henry Cavill out as Superman and who will replace him. We're also going to be doing something fun where we uh, cast trolling the fan base the movies. Uh, so basically what I've done is I've written this sort of fake storyline and uh, we have... Uh, uh, we're going to cast the most iconoclastic characters in this fake storyline. This is as a result of sort of the Twitter reaction to the possibility that Michael B. Jordan could be Superman. Uh, it was vicious and a little racist. And so uh, we're going to we're going to sort of have some fun with uh, Twitter rage. Uh, so we'll be covering those those stories. And then every week we cover a recent film, a movie club entry and a news item. So we'll. Uh, Hope to, hope to see some of our deadly analysis friends over there. Um, yeah, yeah the definitely, definitely subscribe to their channel. Uh, they could use it; it would be great. They cover, you know, it's they they cover a lot of films that we're not going to cover here. I cannot wait to watch the recent Predator in comparison to the old Predator. It's going to be hilarious. Thank uh, you. No. Yeah, Thank you. They, I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I, I actually know you too well enough to know how this is going to go, and I can't. I can't wait. So, uh, yeah, the the other thing about their channel is that at last plug is they have the best opening music uh, for a show you'll ever hear. I'll just throw it that way. It would make Hans Zimmer just. He has nothing on it, right? So anyway, uh, yeah, so check us out, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're going to do uh, I Saw the Devil in two weeks. Um, and then if you have any more recommendations, you know, hit us up on Facebook. Uh, we we have a lot of people that have been talking about 
uh, The Black Coat's Daughter and Pie Wacket. I've seen both of those. I, I will probably add um, one of those to the list. So if you guys have any ideas for stuff that's similar to what we've covered that we haven't, um, post, post on Facebook, hit us up. Uh, Instagram is pretty much used for memes. I love memes for horror, so don't check out Instagram. There's nothing there of value. So Twitter and Facebook, uh, if you like what you saw, subscribe. Uh, I'll see you guys in two weeks. We had a great turnout tonight. It was great seeing our regulars. Um, thanks for joining us for Hereditary, and we will see you on the 30th of September for I Saw the Devil. Have a good night.